Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's that masterpiece known as Who Framed Roger Rabbit? On Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that fit a C for a classic, I for an indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and I am a sensitive and sober fellow. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Brian, and I always knew I'd get it in Toontown. <laughs> Uh, but welcome, everybody, yes, to Cinema to the Letter, uh, where we are at the, in our acronym, uh, where we, you know, cover individual movies and stuff. For this one, we've reached M for Masterpiece, which we, as we mentioned, like, in our setup, in our initial episode, we're kind of going for more modern era, so basically, like, anything from 1980 to about 2019, and all the, anything after that is new, anything before that is a classic, but I don't want to even ask about, like, Masterpiece blockbusters from you. I want to ask a very crucial thing. That I think is so okay. important for setup for this particular episode. What's your relationship with the Looney Tunes? Because, like, he, full disclosure, we have a bit of an age difference. Yes, a little um, bit. There's an age gap, so we're canceled. But um, with, <laughs> <laughs> but um, with the, the, we have a bit of an age gap, and I think that's it's not extremely important, um, except for something like what cartoons we watched. I think are yes quite different. Yeah, I I didn't like watch them a lot growing up. I remember watching like some of the like I don't know the structure of how they were, but like I remember watching that catching like a few of them on Cartoon Network at times. Right. I didn't love them. I wasn't like hooked. I think I as a kid I was very like I think averse to like any animation that wasn't, you know, like I didn't like uh, another like animation thing is like Shaun the Sheep. I didn't like it because they because they didn't talk and stuff like that. So I mm-hmm. I loved kind of some of the comedic bits. I remember like for some reason loving uh, Marvin the Martian. That's his name, right? Yes. Yeah, I remember loving him for some reason. Like I caught an episode with him and I was like, that guy's cool. But it wasn't like an integral part of me growing up. It was kind of one of those things I I, I feel like where I just kind of knew what Looney Tunes was just because of, you know, you know, growing up in America. Um, but I, I have kind of grown to really love, obviously this movie's a part of it, but I've come to love the Looney Tunes and just the animation style and everything. But yeah, that's sort of my, my kind of weird history with the Looney Tunes. What, what about you? Did you like grow up watching the, watching any of, any of them? I mean, I was going to say that I think that's the big thing where you mentioned Cartoon Network, like, I grew up back in Mad Day. Um, Cartoon Network was a newer, like, it started in, like, 92. And there was a certain point where, like, they were making original cartoons pretty much from the start, but they had 24 hours to fill on a cable network. So they just showed 
anything and everything they possibly could, including a lot of Looney Tunes stuff. And I definitely, yep. like, I just considered Looney Tunes on level with, like, Dexter's Laboratory or, like, sure. Powerpuff Girls, because they were, like, so, like, on the same channel and stuff. And to be fair, that's also how I know, like, through Boomerang in particular, about, like, those characters, yes. mm-hmm. or also the Hanna-Barbera characters, any of those things. Um, and I feel like that's a thing that's very much gone away in recent years, I think particularly, like, post, like, you being a kid, there's a lot less of, like, people having any knowledge of what even the Looney Tunes are beyond, like, whatever, like, product they're selling, or in the case of, like, putting in advertising in cinematic form, uh, either Space Jam, uh, which is just, uh, <laughs> just a series of fucking ads, um, to the degree, like, my little, like, nephew, um, he only knows about the Looney Tunes through Space Jam A New Legacy, because he's like five. What a sad life he's living so far. <laughs> I mean, look, he loves all the Looney Tunes. He loves Bugs and Daffy and LeBron, our favorite Looney Tune. I really love, you know, personally, I prefer the Bob Clampett LeBron cartoons. Uh, Frizz Freeling had a couple good ones, but I mean, I don't know. I think it's all Bob's doing. Well, we all love uh, the notorious P.I.G., the, you know, greatest right. character of the. <laughs> Everyone's favorite character. Yes, that's true. Because I think you, I saw on your letterbox, you watched both the Space Jams, right? As sort of like a comparison point for this movie. Yeah. So the I, I watched three movies, kind of in the in, leading up to this, because um, I wanted to get more. I, I was initially going to approach this from a more like Robert Zemeckis, but I kind of figured that I would do it from those kind of live action animation hybrids, um, especially because I hadn't, I haven't seen Space Jam, like the original one. I, I hadn't really seen it at all. Um, okay. at least all the way through. I had seen like bits and pieces of course, but um so I did that one and the sequel. Um and then I also watched Cool World. Yeah, which, Cool World. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean I I, I want to kind of talk about that a bit later as we get into the sort of the legacy of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it's new legacy as it were. Right. The new <laughs> for I feel like the longest time I associated Looney Tunes also with like Tom and Jerry, that same kind of style right. a bit. Those are kind of the two that I like kind of put together in my mind. But yeah, it is interesting. I, w- I wonder if like people who are slightly younger than me know about Looney Tunes besides kind of their just status as cultural, like pop culture icons, I guess. Right. Or more importantly, from people who, I don't know, might be their parents uh, who are just like, man, but Space Jam was the best. I saw it when I was four, and therefore it's great. Yeah, I and like having no nostalgia attached to that movie at all is so fascinating watching it because like I think it's a fine movie. I think it's fine, but yeah, it, it's it's interesting, especially looking at all those the, those three films I mentioned, and then watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and then just seeing the the massive gap in quality between those. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, you know, with uh, the with the Space Jam of it all, I, I will say, as someone who does have nostalgia for Space Jam in terms of actually just seeing it when I was young, you're very nice. Because I think that movie has aged like a fine milk from 1996, <laughs> if you still had that somehow in your house. Uh, that movie's rough. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into all that as we jump yeah. into uh, our feature here of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit. And a down-and-out private detective named Eddie Valiant. Ooga booga! Every moment they were together was a new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie! Please! 
It's a motion picture about friendship. Compassion. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears? Murder. Marvin Acme. The rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. Tunes gets them every time. Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out June 22nd, 1988, based on the novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf. I've not read that novel, but everything I've heard about it makes it seem like, oh, okay, they just kind of took the basic premise and paid Gary K. Wolf to, like, fuck off. And he even has said as much as, like, after this movie came out, any of, like, the sequel novels he's done to Roger Rabbit are all very much based on the movie, as opposed to there's stuff in the novel, from what I understand, where, like, they're not cartoon like short film characters they're like comic strip characters so their speech bubbles appear and that's part like the evidence is like seeing a fading talk bubble and it's like roger rabbit gets killed quote unquote and then turns out he's a villain all this stuff and like the basic characters are all there but uh yeah they just took that premise and ran with it huh interesting yeah i i also have never i've never read the book i i would be kind of curious to read it after seeing like the movie so many times. While we're talking about writers, the writers who are credited here, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, it's weird how they wrote this like movie, which we're going to talk about is like an amazing movie. We both really love it. Yes. Where there's a reason it's under masterpiece uh, for this particular miniseries. But their credits after this are fascinating, where after this, it's uh, Doc Holliday, which is the movie everyone says Cars is a ripoff of. Wild Wild West... Yep. Interesting. Uh, the Jim Carrey, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Sure. An okay movie, I think. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that at some point. That's a movie I have to <laughs> confront. The Queen Latifah vehicle, The Last Holiday. And okay. Shrek the Third. Interesting. Yeah. Very, well, that's a weird... And it's both of them Both of them combined have that same... Yeah, they, they are writing partners, yes. So they wrote Okay, sure, together. yeah. Yes. So they are both equal to blame. Yeah. <laughs> And Hoover and Roger Rabbit also is like their only their second credit because they also had a movie called Trench Coat that they wrote. Never heard of this. Never heard of it life. either. Have no idea. Margot Kidder stars. Okay, interesting. Sure. Uh, but anyway, um, so it's amazing that I think you know those guys who have not continued to prove their value as screenwriters, quite frankly, um, <laughs> wrote this amazing movie. But I think a lot of that has to obviously do with um, a lot of the people involved behind the scenes. Because obviously this movie is uh, produced by uh, our patron saint Steven Spielberg. Um, yes. Right? And uh, also, like, Frank Marshall and um, Dean Cundy is the cinematographer. Dean Cundy shot it. Yes, of course. Cinematographer of, like, Halloween, of course. And, like, The Thing and Jurassic Park. And, and also Camp Rock. And Camp Rock, a masterpiece that That's- will... And, and Jack and Jill. Of course. Oh, my God. That's really... <sighs> it's really sad. The Dean that, Cundy, like, post, like, 95 career is a lot of, like, oh, no. You shot that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last things he did shoot was Home Again. The, like, uh, the Myers... Daughter. Nancy Myers' daughter. Right. Yeah, her, her the movie, movie she made. Yeah. yeah, that's... 
Yeah, that's so weird. And this this movie looks incredible, as many like as all Dean Cundy shot movies around this time do. Well, and that's also, of course, partially uh, credited to, of course, uh, our director here, Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis, yes, is a very fascinating figure as well, kind of in a similar vein to Dean Cundy, where just the <laughs> the eighties run is amazing. I think most of the nineties runs pretty amazing, but there's one crucial step that I think will ruin him later. How do you feel about Robert Zemeckis? Like, I've seen some of his movies, but I have not seen others. Like, I've seen all the Back to the Future movies. Yeah. Um, obviously, I've seen Forrest Gump. Um, I grew up kind of around the perfect time for his kind of experimental animation. St- like, you know, uh, what would you call that? that the mocap, zombie, expert. dead eyes, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um so like I grew up watching Polar Express like every year like I you know that sort of like last day before Christmas break like thing yeah but I have not seen like um, Death Becomes Her which I've heard is great or like I've seen like an hour of Castaway but I haven't seen the full thing um, and the thing I like him I I would like to revisit the Back to the Future movies because I I, I liked them a lot when I was when I watched them but I've only seen them once yeah um, I absolutely despise Forrest Gump. <laughs> um, I, I really don't like that movie at all. And yeah, but, but he's such a fascinating director to, to, to look at. And like, I mean, I did watch his Pinocchio movie recently, which is a fucking disaster yep. in so many ways. But it's so interesting to go back to this period where he, he's just belting out bangers, of course. Like he makes this in between Back to the Future 1 and 2, yes. which is so crazy. And yeah, he's fascinating, but I can't say I love him i don't know how do you feel about about robbie robbie z bobby z um bobby z bzem um i think (laughs) the trouble is that like i really grew up like loving a lot of his like pretty much anything from um like the the back to the future movies or even romancing the stone actually i remember seeing that too as a kid's like romancing the stone through i would say like unfortunately forrest gump and i've talked about this elsewhere of how I basically grew up in the era where Forrest Gump was considered like, oh, this is one of the great movies. You know, it's just like Citizen Kane. Yes. Um, Twelve Angry Men and then fucking Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. And the the weird sort of like seeing it fairly recently and realizing I was kind of brainwashed by a cult uh, to believing that yes. was a good movie. Um, it's fascinating. But but yeah, I think he's, I think the classic example really of like a guy who, when you see his earlier movies, even like, um, I want to hold your hand or use cars. He is like, so already at that point, perfect at like his comedic timing. The, the lack of like great looking comedies, I think is like, because you don't have people like a Zemeckis who like really understand like character comedy and how even like, no matter how silly, especially in the case of say this movie or Looney, no matter how silly our universe is, all the characters have to believe it 100% and just really invest in it and make, like... And he, his movies look so good that the the jokes just, like, work even better because of just how, like, crystal clear, like, every shot is, like, how he builds up suspense even with his comedy. Like, the ending of Back to the Future is the best example of that with, like, Doc trying to, like, get the wires together. Like, oh, no, they fell. Like, I go down the clock tower. He just knows how to, like, make every single comedic beat work at the same time for the story. And then... After a certain point, after Forrest Gump, there's still, like, I like Contact a lot, I think Castaway's great, but then when he gets to, that 2000s, it just becomes so much more about, like, well, I helped revolutionize technology to make my great movies, so now I'll just keep revolutionizing technology, and the movie's quality will come second. 
because the technology <laughs> part's the important thing. And it's he just got too obsessed with his toys. It's a bummer. He does. He does. And even when he goes back to making like a real movie, uh, which is like would be Flight, I guess. Yeah. It it's like not that great, and is kind of like being held up by you know, the greatest, one of the most compelling actors to ever be on screen, Denzel Washington. Like, most of that movie is, like, is just Denzel's performance. Yeah. Well, don't forget that John Goodman also came in with a ponytail to Sympathy for the Devil. That's true. I'm just remembering what he looks like in in that movie, and it's insane. If for anyone listening, don't watch Flight. Just look up clips of John Goodman in Flight, and you're good. Honestly, also, just watch the trailer, and you've pretty much seen Flight. That's true, also. And you don't have to waste, like, what, two hours and 20 minutes? The movie's so unbelievable. It's a very long movie. Yeah, because, like, the flight sequence is, like, at the beginning of the movie, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then I check the time, and I'm like, oh, there's, like, an hour and 40 minutes left. What the fuck is in this movie? And And that's the one bit where he uses technology, and it's the best part of the movie. It is easily, like, the best best part part of the movie. movie. It's a very well-done, like, horrible plane crash sequence. But... Yeah, and I think it's it's because he just learned the wrong lessons from stuff like Back to the Future or this, where this is an infamous movie in terms of the incredible amount of effort to make it happen. Is like it's one yeah. of the rare examples to me, but I still feel for like a movie even of like my childhood or anything where like it's so weird to get like movie magic movies where you were legitimately like, how the fuck was this done? And I've seen so much behind the scenes stuff of this movie. Yet every time I watch the movie. I'm still just like, how in the fuck did they do this? This is insane. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, because all three movies we mentioned before, the you know Space Jam, the terrible sequel, and uh, Cool World, like, all those come after this movie. Yes. And none of them look as good. Not even, like, close. And, and there's, yeah, there's so many parts in this movie that, like, even watching it, like, I mean, how old is this movie? Almost 40 Years old? Yeah, I think it, right? I think it's thirty five years is because it's twenty thirteen to eighty eight. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, it is, yeah, it is still one of those movies that you watch and you're just like, I I don't know how they did this. Like it, it it blows your mind. And there's like it is also it's in like the tiny things in like I think it's the scene where um Eddie Valiant and his and Roger are in the office. Yes. And Roger like moves the chair and his like fingertips like leave on the chair. Yes, his prints are right there on the dust, yes. Yes, and it's it is this weird thing of like it it looks perfect. It like basically looks perfect. Um yeah, there's so many moments in, in this movie like that. I mean and you can see there are attempts with say like a space jam to kind of make some of these things work. Like, the big thing in this movie to me, every time I watch it, that, like, really astounds me, is realizing, like, for any of these animated characters, they had to lay down, like, an obvious, like, basic animation. But then ILM had to go in and be like, oh, let's match the lighting and the shadows and everything and have these, like, special effects animation things that are, like, not computerized. This movie is, like, most... The only computers really used in this were to, like, make props trigger so they can move in a certain way. Right, so, right. For shit like the like Baby Herman is a great example of that. Where if you see any behind the scenes stuff, it's him with like the cigars in his hand. And if you watch like the dailies of that day, it's like a robot with an arm that moves like this that they just <laughs> animated over. It's it, it really is like it's it's from a time when you could actually watch a making of video that looked like cool. Sure, yeah. And it wasn't just a guy sitting at a computer typing buttons and like here's an armature that we made of Roger Rabbit. <laughs> It's George Lucas? He's, he's going to him? <laughs> I showed Steve this. I wanted to show him. Like, you can make a sequel now. We mentioned Spielberg, and it is interesting that this is kind of the 
era of where Spielberg is kind of gets to do whatever, basically. He's made the classic films that kind of, you know, define that early period. And, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know, what, in, in your sort of behind-the-scenes footage, like, how much of that did you find of Spielberg kind of trying to get this thing made and, and helping, helping Bobby Z out? Well, yeah, I think the fascinating thing also, there's so much context to this fucking movie. Because the big thing about this sure. movie as well yeah. is, like, not just, like, the creative, like, labor that had to go into it, but also the timing of it where it just really could not happen any other time than, like, specifically 1988. Because there's the Spielberg thing you mentioned, where he not only directed all those movies, but also had become a big producer, because this is, like, Mm -hmm. peak Amblin period of, like, he had produced, like, Poltergeist and The Goonies and, like, Back to the Future, obviously. So, like, he is in Bobby Z's corner, obviously, and, like, helping him out with, like, you know, the big thing that everyone says is that he was the reason why all the companies willingly said, like, yeah, sure, you can use the Looney Tunes or the Fleischer cartoons or whatever, because he, like, everyone wanted to be in the Spielberg business at that time. So, like, oh, yeah, sure, you want to do a movie with this after this is a favor? That combined with the fact that this is a Walt Disney production and infamously in the 80s, uh, like, and pretty much from, like, 67 or so after Walt Disney died, all the way to, like, you know, when The Little Mermaid came out, or, or so, yeah. um, they were in a rough spot, like, they had just done The Black Cauldron, and, of course, one of my favorite fucking dumb corporate heads of a company ever, Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, <laughs> uh, hop on board from Paramount, and had worked with Spielberg, of course, on the first two Indiana Jones movies, they were running it, uh, well, yeah. Eisner was, for sure, and Katzenberg was somewhere in Paramount, I don't know, point is, they're at Disney now, and they are trying to, like, reshuffle everything because, like, we got to, like, get this working. They were always going to close down the animation arm. And they we're trying to develop it for a while because there's, like, early test footage where you can see, like, um, a weird version of Roger Rabbit voiced by Pee-wee Herman himself, Paul Rubens. Um, okay, okay. And uh, they had gone through, like, different casting attempts and stuff. And then Robert Zemeckis, who I loved, apparently he offered his services to direct, like, all the way back in 82, when he'd only done, like, used cars and I want to hold your hand. Disney was like, no, fuck <laughs> off, we're not going with you, make a hit. And he did, uh, two of them. Yep. One, especially giant one. It really could only have happened, point is, at this particular time, because after this point, you get, like, The Little Mermaid and the Disney Renaissance, and Disney would not ever want to do something this particularly risky at all. We say, like, this movie could not have been made today. Obviously not in the way that people talk about, like, I don't know, like Pulp Fiction. There was like a tweet going around about like Pulp Fiction could never be made today or something. But it it isn't like that. But it's a thing of like the fact that this movie features, prominently features a smoking baby, like smoking a gigantic cigar. Like Disney would never release this now. Or have like a character as overtly sexual as Jessica Rabbit or have so many, even like characters uh, saying like damn and hell, animated characters. Or even like uh, the, the gorilla at one point calls Eddie Valen a wise ass. Like, that would never happen <laughs> in the modern Disney movie. Now. No. I mean, just describing the, the plot of this movie in terms of the fact that it is about, like, California, like, real estate and, like, the, the you know, the freeway system and, right. and all of this stuff. It, it is such a bizarre plot for a movie and it's such an insane movie that, yeah, it never, like, Disney today would never even consider releasing this. No, they wouldn't. And I think, like, that only could come from just the desperation of where they were at that point. Yeah. Just the, the fact that it's like, all right, fine, you know what, we've got Spielberg in our belt, and we've got, like, this guy who directed Back to the Future, fine, we'll do it, I'm sure, like, we need something. It was like their Hail Mary pass, 
pretty much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one other person we should mention from behind the camera, who doesn't really get enough credit for this movie, ever, is Richard Williams, who yeah. is a mm-hmm. great Canadian-British animator who had worked under some of the people, like, he, his mentor was Malt, uh, is Wilt Call? Mold Call? I forgot. But he's one of, like, the nine old men from Disney. Oh, like one right. of the original animators. Milt Call, that's it. Um, but, yeah, so he had worked under him, but at the same time had, like, been very disillusioned with, like, the Disney machine and was, like, a rare renegade animator, which is something, I don't know, you can't really do since that costs so much money, usually. <laughs> you gotta, like, yeah. really show. And to be fair, he had done, like, before this, he had weirdly won a Best Animated Short Oscar for an adaptation of A Christmas Carol um, that had aired on television first. Right, released in 1971. Yes, great version of that by the way I, I watched a lot of Richard Williams stuff sort of in prep for this um, and I'll be talking about maybe one later in the show put a pin in that uh, but that guy is like such a fascinating sort of renegade animator in a way because especially given how much he does not like sort of the Disney culture but at the same time respects the animation so much you can tell that through this movie where he definitely has a lot of attention to like either the old Tex Avery Warner Brothers style or various honestly it's, they say Tex Avery in the behind the scenes a lot but there's a lot of Bob Clampett and Frizz Freeling all the other people influence there and the old like uh, you know the classic Disney characters but there's still a little bit more of that oh we're gonna treat these guys like real characters to the degree that they're also gonna like do kind of slightly lascivious things like, as much as we can do for this PG rating. <laughs> and I think yes. that's... Like, when he's in the same sphere as, like, Zemeckis and Spielberg, I would argue in that regard, like, it's the perfect synthesis of creative voices. Yes, it it, it is. it Because the animation in this movie is so incredible yeah. and is so beautiful. And, you know, a lot of these kind of live-action animation hybrids now, the animation can feel very subpar to the live-action stuff because, like... I mean, you mentioned it's, it takes so much work to make one of these and to make it look good. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah, which is why, like, this isn't the first movie to do it. But at the same time, any older movie where you see it, it's usually either a short film or it's like a scene. Like, there's the, I think it's Anchors Away, where it's Gene Kelly dances with Jerry the mouse from Tom and Jerry. Okay. And stuff right. like that. So it would, like, not be, this is the most ambitious possible thing where there's, like, 48 minutes of animation, which is, like, half an animated movie, basically. <laughs> in this live-action movie that's a period film that also is a massive special effects extravagance. (laughs) Yes, and it's it's the decision as well, because, like, talking about Space Jam, for instance, like, the animation and the way that those characters kind of move alongside the live-action element, in that case, Michael Jordan, (laughs) um, it, it almost feels a bit rigid. And this movie, I love especially the Roger Rabbit's animation, because he will literally go anywhere in like a room that he like is in and it's so unhinged it's not like Hanna-Barbera shit where it's like very clearly like bad sort of like where they do one frame every 10 seconds kind of animation yeah yeah they're they're not like restricting themselves in terms of like what they can do in the animation it just feels so crazy usually in animation they tend to like animate with like they they call it by twos, which is basically like for every you know, twenty four frames per second, um, you use uh, two of like the same shot for like two seconds, 
So it's total of like 12 pictures basically in a second. Um, but they're just like repeated because that creates enough of like the vision thing as opposed to Richard Williams is like on ones. We are doing 24 pictures for this second. And I think that really shows with that fluidity that you're talking about. Even characters standing still, like um, one of my favorite cameos in here, Droopy Dog, uh, who's voiced by Richard Williams, where like he is just... <laughs> really? sta- yeah, right. Yes, he, he apparently loved... That was his favorite like classic cartoon, so we just had the impression down. Pretty perfect. That's awesome. Um, but he um, he's just standing there and talking to someone, but there's still so much fluidity in just the way he stretches his neck. I'm like, going down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I mean, even just like the the the, the I'm like the car. I, I don't know his name, but like the the car. Benny the cab, like, sir. You respect his goddamn. Yes, name. <laughs> yes. My apologies. Um, just the, the the sort of like mini chase sequence that happens in this movie is so crazy that you have like this, you know, live action element of Bob Hoskins in an animated car like being chased by live action car it's it's such an insane well especially on a street with other cars that are moving even yes like that's the thing is that they add enough of this detail that was the whole like thing with the animation usually was just like we have to do something where like you have to like believe the details in the background so that an animated character feels of a piece but like yep that's uh, a cartoon cab driving bob hoskins through 1947 la (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, where where to begin with here? Should we should we talk about a bit of the cast because it's a very interesting cast. Yes. You know, I want to talk about first because um, uh, you mentioned Benny the Cab, and the most frequent voice actor here is Charles Fleischer, who is the voice of Roger as well as Benny as well as two of the uh, weasels. He's Greasy and Psycho. You can probably guess. <laughs> Hell yeah. These are based they're very subtle designs, um, but. I find that guy so fascinating because he's a, he's great as a voice actor in here. I think particularly, I noticed Brian shocked. I think so I know I'm why. A face. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at his filmography. Yes. <laughs> and I'm realizing that like the, so the main thing that I guess I would know him from is from Zodiac. Yes. Because he has the the basement scene. If you've seen Zodiac, you know what I'm talking about. Um, he's the terrifying man <laughs> in yes. that scene. He's also in the, like other other stuff like in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, yes, he's in Rango. Yeah, that's yeah crazy. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, but I think that's what's what's fascinating. I was going to bring this up because like I think he works so well as a comedic voice actor. But anytime I see him in things, and I want to emphasize if Charles Fleischer is listening, you're a very talented person. He looks terrifying. Like he does, he, and he came up as a comedian, and I've seen like clips of him performing, like you know, at different like award shows and stuff. Like there was a clip of him giving the uh, best achievement award for this movie, the the Oscar for best achievement in like okay. a- animation. Him presenting that with Robin Williams dressed up as Mickey Mouse. That's so and, cool. But you just see the weird contrast where those guys came up together. But obviously, Robin Williams is like a living cartoon character. He was back when. <laughs> Rest in peace. But yes. like he just versus Charles Fleischer, who is like kind of trying to match that energy, but is so much more like awkward. And especially he leans very heavily into like the other part of Williams no one talks about it, but like all the voices he did, some of which were unsavory and shouldn't have been done by a white person. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um and it's it's so weird because it's like I think he works perfectly as a cartoon voice here, but like as you mentioned, he's perfectly cast in Zodiac 
because he's the yeah. most terrifying man who's ever lived. And even in like <laughs> other things, like I watched him in a TV special, like for the 30th anniversary of Disneyland. And okay. he like appears at different points as different like people. Like he's Butler at the Haunted Mansion or he's driving the Jungle Cruise. And he's trying to be like funny, but also a terrifying specter. <laughs> over Disneyland. <laughs> it's it's so weird. Point is, I just think that he doesn't seem necessarily the part for like a silly rabbit. No, not at all. But like he kind of is great for like Benny the Cab because there's that one shot where like it's like it's when like it's at the end of the chase when like they have like a real car kind of swerve left yeah. out of like the way and Benny the Cab's like get out of my way I'm driving here and it's I'm like that's that sounds like the man from Zodiac I also um, I would like of all these cartoons that are created for the movie I would so watch a Benny the Cab series of cartoons oh man absolutely so funny especially like my favorite line in the one of my favorite lines in the movie is like when they take him out of the weasel's truck and he just says like I, they picked me up for driving on the sidewalk it was only for a couple miles <laughs> so that feels like the perfect cartoon character yeah I the bit where he like crashes right where when like doom like pours the, the the dip onto like the road and then he like crashes and then he gets in the car with roger but he's like sitting like he's like a like not a car like he's driving the car but also i love that he puts his headlights on but not the car's headlights <laughs> yeah yeah that is such a great bit i guess here's a question i was gonna ask you actually do you have like a favorite bit in this movie or a favorite sort of like comedic little moment um, that stands out to you? I mean, that that is tough because I think I have several different favorite move- moments of this movie. Not all of them comedic. There's genuinely stuff that sure. tears me up, honestly. But I think if I had to pick a favorite, it's probably the moment after the opening cartoon starts, which the opening cartoon's great. It's the first thing they animated yes. and it's such a great encapsulation of like what those old like looney tunes shorts were but then it's that moment where like the director opens the fridge and everything is live action and it's an amazing yeah. technical shot but it's also so funny that roger's just sort of like but look i can give you stars i want to give you yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i just i love the baby herman just like being like oh you come on we, we could have had that one come on roger what are you doing <laughs> and then like he's like just like storms offset and yeah there's so many great bits in this i love i mean my current zoom background which is like during that chase sequence yes. where the benny's like pull that lever and bob hoskins is like what lever and then it just says this lever's stupid <laughs> and it points um i also love just the the bit of when he gets like the revolver like the cartoon revolver and all the bullets are like little animated characters right cowboy just something i very yeah, yeah i love that yeah, I mean, that's great. I think, like, another one, and I think this movie, whenever anybody talks about the various different properties, which we'll get into, you're like, here, everyone points out about, like, oh, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny in the same shot yeah. together. My Zoom background currently. Um, yeah. And, like, that's the, oh my god, I can't believe they're together, but the fucking Donald versus Daffy piano fight <laughs> is so yeah. great, because it has, like, such perfect timing for, like, any of those Looney Tunes cartoons on the animation alone. But then also the fact that they're dealing with real pianos. They're actually, like, breaking and cracking as they're, like, hitting each other over the head. It's so perfect. It's just a genuinely funny, like, setup. But, like, of course these two would, like, battle this way. (laughs) Yeah, I love that he has that line of, like, does anyone understand what he's saying? (laughs) (laughs) Or especially the bit where Daffy, like, is going crazy and his hair goes wild. And then he 
puts it back and he just has like a calm moment while like Don has the cannon coming in. <laughs> yeah. But that's also like a sequence where it's like one of those like how did they do this things because like he's like perfectly playing he's playing the piano like you know and you can see like the keys moving and it's you know I'm I'm not I'm not a piano player I don't know if he's actually you know playing the notes that you hear but it, it is just so impressive and yeah just them like like pulling the the pianos off stage it's so like yeah it's such a perfect comedic timing yeah that's it for sure but you know what? we've been talking about tunes for so long we got to talk about our human our main man yeah the perfect man bob hoskins Yes, literally the perfect man. This is what the ideal image for a man is. <laughs> what stop yeah, you from looking like this? <laughs> yes, that's it. when he takes his shirt off and is like just a ball of hair with legs. I'm like, this is the ma- this is the ideal male body type. <laughs> <laughs> He's so great in this movie, and it's funny because I've never seen his. Have you seen his early like? He, you know, he he was known for like a he was a a lot of British gangster movies. Have you seen a lot of any of those movies? Um, I did just recently see Mona Lisa, which he did right before this and got him an Oscar nomination. Okay. Um, it's an amazing movie and he's great in it. But I mean, I'd seen him also in other things like he's in a couple of Terry Gilliam movies like in Brazil. He's just a, one of the plumbers, ironically. Oh, yes, a while before. yes, yes. Uh, of course, and yes. of course, uh, after this, I've seen like Super Mario, which is uh, definitely also a movie I did kind of grow up with in terms of like the infamy of it. And it, it's so weird where, like, I had no idea he was British until much later than I would care to admit, honestly. Yeah, I had the same thing, because he he does a perfect, you know, this kind of voice, you know, kind of old-timey and kind of rugged. You know, he does, it's, he's so good at that. And, yeah, I, I never knew he was British. He's such a great actor. I, you know, I like Hook, and I think he's really great in Hook. Uh, this is an interesting thing I wanted to kind of mention, though, as we get to like the character of Eddie Valiant is like, who who else was up for this role? Yes, um, because there's some very interesting choices that I don't really think would yeah. have gone well. Um, would you like to list some of them off? Well, I mean, their original uh, choice was Harrison Ford, who was like Spielberg's especially main choice. Uh, but he of was course. too expensive. Then there was like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray didn't have any interest. Uh, Eddie Murphy, who misunderstood the concept apparently and really regrets turning down that role. Uh, but then also speaking of him again, Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone, Edward James Olmos, uh, Ed Harris, Charles Grodin, and my favorite, Wallace Shawn. Yeah, I saw Wallace Shawn in here and he's probably the only one on this list who could probably nail it because like yeah like all these but like the comedian all the comedians like chevy chase and like murray and eddie murphy around this time like i just don't think any of them would have been able to nail this as good as bob hoskins i I think wallace sean would have been really interesting um But none of, like, Robert Redford makes no sense at all. I would argue Harrison Ford makes some sense. I think Harrison Ford, in terms of, like, a gruffness, he can be comedic, but there's still, like, that, I think he would have gotten sort of, like, I have to play the tragedy of this, and that's what will make it funny. I would kill to see him do, like, that ending routine where he has to, like, dance and sing. That would be the best thing. (laughs) It would be great. Yeah. But I, I agree with you that Hoskins is so perfect, I think, because, like I mentioned, he treats the drama of that character genuinely seriously. 
Like, you yes. get the sense, even though he is, like, doing some silly things, especially during that, like, ending, it's only because, like, this guy, the, the sort of backstory that's unveiled in my favorite shot that doesn't involve cartoons in this movie, it, where basically there's a certain point after, like, he gets the initial, um, sort of, like, the picture's done and pisses off Roger, he ends up going back to his apartment, and he just looks over the photos that were developed that Dolores had dropped off, and it's like, oh, it's the old one from our Cancun trip, and it's, like, him and his brother... And then he, like, falls asleep drinking, basically, while the camera pans over the entire disc that reveals so much. And it's, like, great visual storytelling. just gives you everything about, like, who he is, including, I love this headline. I didn't really notice it until this watch of, um, on the newspaper, it says, Goofy cleared of spy churches. (laughs) (laughs) Which I want that. I want to see that adventure. (laughs) That one really killed me. Um, yeah, I would love to see, like, a a courtroom drama with Goofy. (laughs) It's just, it's just Bridge of Spies, but with Goofy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I'm not a communist. <laughs> so many of the jokes, you might only see them for like a second. And they could be such throwaway jokes, but they stick with you because they're just like, they're so funny and just so like weirdly funny. Like Goofy I've cleared of spy charges. Like what a weird, what a weird headline. I, I will say, like, all of that, that stuff feels very much in line with the movie. Like, the movie does a really great job of establishing the whole, like, tunes live in this world, and this is kind of the the rules that we have for them. And then, you know, of combining that with the real, quote-unquote, real, like, California of this time. It, right. it, it does such a great job of making it feel real. Like, this could be a real place. <laughs> right. That like, truly conveys, like, that period tone, but at the same time, the aesthetics of all these cartoon characters, and even just the way they establish tunes as, like, second-class citizens, basically. Where, like, they don't yeah. go too far and, say, pull a bright with it, necessarily. They don't go that far with it. <laughs> oh, but man. they have little hints, like, the Ink and Paint Club is a great example of that, where that's based on, like, Cotton Club-style stuff. Yeah. With black performers mm-hmm. and completely, like, white, wealthy audiences. And it works so perfectly that, like... Everything we get helps establish sort of the world building, as people love talking about um, currently. But it doesn't, like, really get in the way of the story. It just helps increase the story. Like, one of my favorite, I think maybe my favorite sort of cameo in this movie is Betty Boop. Not because I have any affinity for Betty Booth, really, beyond just, like, I know who Betty Boop is. I've seen, like, some clips of the old cartoons. But just the weird back and forth that she has with Eddie that implies, like, a history of like yes. yeah Betty and I got up into some some trouble but like I like this <laughs> you still got it Betty actually like weird yeah. like warms my heart it's so sweet and, and also just it recalls there's a tragedy just because she's like the only black and white cartoon in the middle of yeah. this entire thing that's like lush with color and it's it, it, it it's a joke that also sells the reality and that there's so much that's gone on before you've even seen this movie yeah, and I love that it kind of is playing a bit on the whole, like, silent movie stars when sound right. came into play, kind of that whole... I, I love the way that it plays on that, and can, and and the minute she says that, you're like, oh yeah, that kind of, like, within the context of this world, it would make sense that, like, those silent black and white characters, like, wouldn't fit into the, you know, modern society. I, I also, uh, like, a throwaway, like, not a throwaway line, but a line I, I love is, I think it's... I think it might be in the opening scene after that, like, opening cartoon, I think is when um, someone says, like, they're tuned. You can you can do anything to them and they'll survive. And it's it's this weird thing. I'm like, yeah, that's, it's 
cartoon logic. Like, you can just draw pianos on them. Right. What happens to them. But at the same time, there's also a bit of, like, that judginess. Like, even R.K. Maroon's a great example of this. Um, yeah. Where, like, he is shown, like, oh, look, I got uh, I got Dumbo on loan from Disney. He works That's for Peanuts. Game. Which is, like, great. it's a funny bit. It's a funny pun. But also, it immediately gets you the idea of, like, oh, this guy just puts him on his contract. He's like, they're the fun. They're not beings that have lives yes. that I care about. They're just like these things. And then that also, that shot where like after he leaves that office and he goes through and sees like all the different cartoons, like just on the set, like there's the cattle call for like all the cows, which is like literally <laughs> called the cattle call. Um, or even like just the fact that in that scene, you see so much of like the filmmaking where Robert Zemeckis famously was like, I'm moving the camera. I'm moving the camera around and it, because usually whenever they would do this kind of like, like live action animation, the camera is like very still and you're not moving it at all. You're not doing any kind of big movements. And so you have like little characters who you only see like the tops of like, there's these weird like devil ones who are just walking by Eddie and getting in his way. And you just see like the tops of their heads because you don't need to show everything else off to like make that particular like camera move work. And it's amazing. Yeah. That sequence where like, it's like a, this like, sweeping like shot of like the lot it is so great because it is kind of that like it, it's almost similar to like the star wars thing of like background characters stand out so much and like you know you could like watch roger rabbit and sort of pick out your favorite background character like it's, even in that sequence it's, it's so great and especially even just the the random assortment of characters they got where, like, you see, like, obvious ones like oh there's clarabelle cow but then oh yeah. look there's the fleischer brothers clown <laughs> Someone who means nothing to anyone ab- yeah. below the age of, like, 50 <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, and but it is, like, that, that, like, love and care to these characters. And, yeah, like, the way, like, the, the R.K. Maroon character, like, hmm, you could almost say he treats them like IP in a way. Hmm. Um, hmm. I wonder how that's relevant hmm. at all. Yeah, this movie has no relevance to today in any way. Um, By the way, that actor Alan Tilburn, who's great. A perfect, like, salty Louis B. Mayer type. Of just like, yes. ah, I have smoke cigars and I'm, like, gonna die from lung cancer in, like, what's, 10 years. Yeah, what's the line he has when, like, when Eddie Valiant first walks into the, into, the, like, the thing when he's, like, looking through, like, the editing, like, screen and he says something, like, really funny where he's just, like... No, 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 they're tuned. You gotta drop a bigger piano. He said something like that. Right, right. He's just really giving great, notes like... in the editing suite, basically, about <laughs> yeah. a cartoon. I want to go back to Bob Hoskins. We kind of, like, diverted a bit from Hoskins. Yeah. Because, like, he plays all that sincerity, but also he's genuinely just, like, a great comedic straight man. Like, the scene Absolutely. where him and Roger are, like, stuck in the speakeasy, and he's trying to, like, saw off his handcuff. It's, like, <laughs> could only work as well because every single element of that is, like, so perfectly synthesized, including Hoskins, who, like, basically, like, throughout this whole production is, like, talking to nothing. More common now, but yeah. at this time, he's talking to nothing, and so at the same time, you believe the eyeline, because the animation and him are, like, so in sync. You totally believe, like, the chemistry he has with Roger because Charles Fleischer was on the set, by the way, in a Roger Rabbit costume, which he insisted on, <laughs> in order to be fully immersed <laughs> in the character. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. Um, and and all that, like, it's still, it feels so perfect. And it's all, like, starts, I would say, with Hoskins. It would not work at all without him being able to do that to the degree that, like, uh, this is a best actor-worthy performance. It's genuinely, like, a, a brilliant performance from an actor. I agree. Yeah, imagining him sort of having to act to nothing, basically, and how 
perfect he is in this movie and every little comedic bit is so he's so great at that and especially when we get to toontown like such a breathtaking sequence and like ima- like the, the way that that sort of sequence flows and how bob hoskins like reacts so perfectly to everything i mean like the scene that is your zoom background with like mickey and bugs his reaction is just so is so perfect uh, yeah he it is a really phenomenal performance but we should also talk i should we talk about christopher lloyd <laughs> fuck yeah we should talk about christopher lloyd my favorite thing about judge doom and christopher lloyd is like he shows up on screen and you're just like hmm is this the bad guy i wonder if this is the bad guy because <laughs> he's just everything about him screams evil <laughs> like he looks like just so the incarnation of like evilness <laughs> yeah the like the costume design the design of his spectacles but even just also his performance especially like when you see this movie after like the second time and you know that he's the tune that twist you just realize oh it makes so much sense he feels like a cartoon character who is bottling up any of his cartoonish instincts and he lets that yes. come out occasionally like my favorite is when he's at like the bar and he, like, picks up a merry-go-round broke down. A quite loony selection for a bunch of drunken reprobates. Um, but then he, like, sniffs it. And then he just looks up like, he's here. <laughs> like, that's a tune moment. <laughs> that is yeah. a real, like, cartoony moment. And then also just the, even the design of, like, his fake teeth. They're, like, so obviously fake. That could only yes. be just like, oh, this is a tune hiding with dentures. <laughs> yes. His whole design is so unsettling. Where, like, I, I feel like this was a big, like especially his whole sequence at the end, which I've changed my Zoom background to, which is his, his eyes, like, popping out. Which, like, I love that they become, like, daggers after this, like, at, right after this, like, this shot. I, I feel like that sequence is a very, like, too young to see how horrifying this is kind of yeah. moment for a lot of people. I mean, he's responsible um, for two of them in this movie with that and the dip shoe thing, which is, like, yes. often said, is like, oh, I saw this when I was, like, five and it fucked me up. Um, I'll add to the chorus and concur with those statements, even though I watched this movie so many times, it still disturbed me every time. It's so upsetting, because he looks, the, the little shoe looks so sad, and it's just so, uh, it's such an upsetting scene. And trivia, that shoe, an early voiceover role for Miss Nancy Cartwright, before she became Bart Simpson. Oh, interesting. Yes. Huh. Very interesting. This would be right before The Simpsons, too. Huh. I think it would have been, like, um, during the Tracy Ullman short days, basically. Like, sure, this is, right. like, very early in that run. Yeah, and I love that whole the whole sequence where like he goes to the factory for the first time at the beginning of the movie, and there's so much setup for like the hammer that like the fist comes out of, and so much good setup that like pays off at the very end of the movie because you you've already seen it. it. It's just yeah, one of those things that about this movie that's so great. Yeah, and even just down to like the specifics of the gags there, stuff like the um, hole that's able to like go in the middle of the wall or whatever. But even like the Frank Sinatra sword is like exactly <laughs> what every single like Looney Tunes cartoon would do for like a celebrity impression. Because I watched a bunch of Looney Tunes shorts and prep for this, they had it out for Frank Sinatra, man. There's like so many jokes. Like there's literally, there's a one of my favorite ones that I watched recently was um, this one about like Porky Pig has a farm. And all of the hens are, like, laying eggs, but they stop after they leave production to go listen to a rooster who sings like Frank Sinatra (laughs) sing. (laughs) And all of them just shout, like, it's Frankie! Like, that's, like, even Bugs Bunny has done that, too. Just like, oh, is that Frankie over there? Like, they really had it in. But it's the perfect kind of, like, joke that, like, you, I didn't get it all as a kid. 
I, I had no idea about like singing sword and it's like, okay, I don't know who that is. And, but it, yeah. it, this j- movie has so many jokes like that. They're just like, oh, yes. they have age all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Christopher Lloyd, Christopher Lloyd, um, his performance works so well in that, like, he's so menacing. <laughs> yes. And so just like, he, he's genuinely terrifying is like the thing about him. And I, I don't know. Lloyd is just, he's selling it so well. I don't know. How, how do you feel about Christopher Lloyd? How do you feel about Christopher Lloyd in general? I mean, Christopher Lloyd, like, because I grew up with, like, the Max of the Future movies and stuff, Christopher Lloyd was, like, one of the prime examples. Like, he's technically not a that guy kind of character actor, because I would argue, like, most people would recognize at least, like, oh, that's Doc Brown. Like, if you have that to think of a role, you're not technically a character actor. But he has such a great career of a character actor, where you look at, like, you know, where he started, like, back in Taxi, or in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, when he's with Danny DeVito as well, (laughs) in a very early role. But then, like, all the different stuff he's done, he's one of those actors who's, like, so incredibly committed and can go wild, but doesn't do it, like, all the time. He knows how to play things subtly. He knows how to play things over the top. Even now, when Christopher Lloyd... Like, cashes in on being Doc Brown again, like in a commercial or something. I can't be mad at him. You know, get that yeah. money. You're still fun as him. Go ahead. Sure. Do it. Promote Nikes by being Doc Brown or whatever. <laughs> the, the sequence of him, like, where he gets flattened by, like, the, the big machine at the end and then, like, reinflates himself is so creepy and so, right. like... And the, the only bit of stop motion in the movie... Oh, interesting. Right, yeah. And and that's kind of one of the things about this movie, where it is this whole, like, you know, like we mentioned, like, the shoe scene of being, like, kind of very scary for, like, younger children. But I, I, a lot of what I love about this movie is the way that it doesn't treat animation and these characters, even though they're animated, it doesn't treat them in a juvenile way or doesn't, like, treat them like they are, like, just for kids, like, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, but isn't also, like, the kind of edgy, sort of, like, cool stuff that we get in Cool World, which right. is just so, like, <laughs> cringy and terrible. Um, yeah, it, it, it all just works so well. Well, especially when the, I think the big line between that is you mentioned Cool World with uh, Hollywood, uh, one of our favorite female <sighs> cartoon characters, but even uh, Jessica Rabbit, where obviously... You know, the, the big hurdle with this is, like, Disney being like, you can't have, like, a character this sexual in, like, a Disney movie in theory. But because of now, it's like, fine, do whatever, we're desperate. But um, Jessica Rabbit is somebody who, like, initially feels like, and, you know, if you go to certain parts of the internet, uh, they have one <laughs> sort of point of view about Jessica. But I like that Jessica actually feels like an interesting character where, like, she has, like, dignity about her life. She loves yeah. her husband genuinely over like a personality tree of like he makes me laugh which is great i love that line it's one of my favorite lines in the entire movie because it is like this thing where you're just where bob hoskins character he's legitimately just like why why this fucking clown and she's just like yeah he makes he makes me laugh and it's so it's so sweet yes and and she feels like a bit more complex as a character than i think people give her credit for um even though at the same time she's a hilarious caricature of like bombshell sexuality of that particular period yes. where that's the thing with like her and Benny of the Cab and Roger Rabbit they all feel like characters who would have probably existed 
in this like era of animation where you have like more animation studios doing shorts and stuff. And Roger Rabbit even feels in his own way because Richard Williams even said this at like, oh, he's got like the ears of Bugs Bunny, but then like the gloves of Mickey Mouse and like the overalls kind of were called goofy, stuff like that. He's an amalgamation to where I could believe that like there were some studio made a Roger Rabbit type character who was a ripoff of so many different cartoons and tried to make him work. Roger even feels like he's sort of more like a B-list character because he looks up to Goofy and other things. So yeah. like that works. But at the same time, I love even the weird thing where Jessica, but also Betty Boop with like the what a lucky Goyle bit yeah. implies that like <laughs> maybe Maroon just like does this because he's a weird tune sex symbol. <laughs> Which is the funnier thing to me. It's just that, like, all of the, we can't, like, all the Lady Tunes want to see Roger Rabbit cartoons. That's it's such a big industry for us. It's a specific niche market. Yeah. <laughs> I love, like, the, the line at the very end that Jessica has to Roger, where she's like, Roger, you were amazing. Much better than Goofy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so especially she's like my hero, and then knocks like Eddie out of the way. Just like, oh, Roger, you was so brave. Yeah. Uh, which shout out? We should meet uh, Kathleen Turner in an uncredited voiceover performance. Interestingly enough, as Jessica. Huh. Interesting. Um, who's like the perfect person to like play a sort of noir femme fatale type uh, character? Yes. Of at least the the red herring of her character. Yeah, she's amazing. Also, um, former Miss Steven Spielberg Amy Irving does the vocal performance. During the like the ink and paint club scene. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she just leave them the temp track and they used it. But that's a great example also. What we've been talking about this whole time, like everything just synthesizing so well with like that number, like the fact that Jessica interacts with everybody, where like she grabs ties, she makes that one guy like like puts her hand on his forehead, even the way <laughs> she like gets out the handkerchief for uh, Marvin Acme and like <laughs> shines his bald head and stuff like that. It just is like an amazing example of like it's a funny parody of like those kind of scenes in like noir movies yes. or like a sort of cartoon version of like a noir movie, but it also has like such technical wizardry. That's just casual. Like this movie has, yes. is like a very casual flex of every single it person is. involved. It is. It absolutely is. And, and, and like one of the things I, I was thinking about, and I kind of mentioned how like expressive all the animated characters are, like they feel like they could be in one of those like old shorts is like you know it's a movie made in 1988 and like you would think that like some a it would start to age a bit but i i do think that because the characters are just so well animated and there's nothing like yeah that that sequence you mentioned with with Jessica Rabbit is not flashy necessarily in any way um yeah it, it it's it's almost quite simple in like it's just her like you know kind of you know, doing a performance and having little interactions with these characters. And it, it looks so great still to this day. And then even when there's a couple of details, like the only time I notice it is like when you have, say, there'll be foreground shots where you have like one of the weasels putting dip in and then you have Roger and Jessica like in the way background during the finale. Like, yeah, they mm -hmm. look a bit like, oh, they obviously focus all their animation on the two characters in the foreground. But also like they spent 14 months animating this fucking movie. Like, yeah, they shot this movie in, like, 86, insane. and then spent over a year animating it. Yeah, it, that's absolutely insane. It, it It is one of those things where, like, I just, it's, it's like, it's movie magic. It's that sort of thing where you just, like, it, it makes no sense how they did this, even if you've, like, seen behind-the-scenes footage or whatever. Like, it is, it's, it's perfect in, in so many ways. Yeah, 
they're they're able to do the small stuff. That's what Zemeckis always kind of emphasizes. Like, if we get these small details right, everyone will love this. Like that the weasels hold live action guns. <laughs> the one with like the Thompson is so funny to me. <laughs> the way they just shoot the door down. It, it yeah, it looks so funny that they're like holding like real revolvers and 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 that was done by literally having like little like um, marionette strings. For like them, so that's there's somebody like up there, fucking like with a giant marionette string going around. Or even like the Ink and Paint Club is built on like eight foot above the ground, so guys can be around with like little tr- like sticks that have the trays on them for the penguins to carry. Oh my god, that's yeah, it, it, that's so crazy, and it is like it, it is also this this kind of thing that like with the the sort of bad versions of these kinds of movies that like the, the that sort of like actual work and sort of like actual technical ability is not really like it, it, it the, the work ha- isn't put in as as much with a lot of the movies that come after this which are trying to sort of do the same thing um well i i wouldn't argue necessarily work as much as just like time allotted to workers right yeah that's like what i mean clearly yeah. the bigger problem yeah where it's just like mm. they like i said they had over a year to animate this which even for a lot of anime movies isn't like a massive amount of time but it's more than like the crunch time especially a lot of computer animators get at this point which is like this comes out in two yeah. months fucking finish it <laughs> <laughs> by the way we uh we haven't mentioned this because of the weird sort of uh schedule for our recording but you know this is recording not too long after the actors and writers strikes have like officially combined yeah and I think it's fair to say uh, we support that, especially for, like, say, a movie like this. We support entertainment Absolutely. workers getting fair rights. Tunes or not. It, <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. It, the, just the, the sort of modern-day parallels of, like, the entertainment industry, just all of, the, all of that stuff is so, is so interesting and has just aged in such an interesting way. But even, like, the whole, like, Chinatown-esque, like, subplot, Yes. Of sort of like clover, clover leaf, I believe it's called, right? Right. Not, not clover field. There's no clover monster. Not clover field. <laughs> Animated in 2D in this movie, no. <laughs> um, yeah, of like clover leaf trying to take over like the public transportation system to the, so that they can make the the freeway system. Um, I mean, like ah, the, the, the speech that Judge Doom gives at the end where he's like, it will be beautiful, and there will be billboards everywhere. My, and my, my like, favorite part of that is uh, Christopher Lloyd saying, Tire salons! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it, but it is, it, it's so interesting to, look, to like watch this movie and look at that and sort of to listen to that speech and sort of look at the modern-day infrastructure of like the U.S. And it's like, yeah, everything kind of looks like Christopher Lloyd is you know, like Judge Doom is describing in that scene. That's kind of the, that's the hell we live in now. Well, even then, um, like, this is actually based on, like, actual events because back in the 30s, L.A. did actually have, like, a robust public transportation system with, like, electric cars that went everywhere. And, you know, after, like, 1950 or so, um, they were bought up by mainly a lot of, like, oil companies and shit like that who just dismantled these electric public transportation systems and put in buses, and that's how we get, like, the modern, uh, you know, sort of infrastructure of transportation, which this movie is, like, a sort of Quentin Tarantino alternate history, where it's like, a tune did it, and we yeah. got rid of him, so it didn't happen, and Toontown is great, and we go on average roads now. <laughs> yeah, I love the line, it's when he's, like, he's catching, like, the, the tram car or whatever with, like, the kids, and he's like, 
it, who, who needs a car in LA? We have we have the the fastest public transportation in the world. <laughs> it's such a funny line to think about now, where it's like LA is notorious for its like terrible traffic. Right, where every single um, comedian after like 1975 is doing that joke about LA traffic. It's yeah. the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that plot line and I, it's such a it's so fascinating to because I feel like when you first watch the movie you're not really paying attention to any of that stuff like especially like when they go to the theater and they're playing like the the sort of like commercial ad thing talking about or like the newsreel but like when you rewatch it and sort of pay attention to that stuff it's like the contrast of that in this sort of like cartoon world is so interesting and yet like adds i think so much of like so much weight to the the actual like you know it sounds so funny to say world building in this like with this with this movie but like the world building of this movie which also adds to even just like the another great thing about zemeckis in his prime a master of setup and payoff just a absolute yes. master of like making the setup feel casual like the opening, say, of Back to the Future 1 with, like, Doc Brown, where it's like, oh, we're focused on, like, the dog food thing going, but we're getting stuff about the plutonium, we're getting all these indications yes. that he mm-hmm. was, like, a weird scientist man who was kicked out of his world and stuff like that. Um, he just feels like such a perfect example of, like, if we make this once again, like, we just put this here and we trust the audience to, to like, figure out the exposition on their own, put two and two together, then, like, we can make this world feel so massive and big. Yeah, it's so great. You know, another thing I wanted to talk about in terms of sort of like the place and time of this movie, a big thing, and this can probably transfer the transition at least us into talking about sort of the IP of it all. Um, this is one of the last, I think the last time Mel Blanc, who did the voices of like nearly every Looney Tune, did his voices yeah. before he dies in 89. So like this oh, okay. is like the absolute last possible thing. He like yeah, I think he's in like the Jetsons movie or something. So that came out afterward. But this is like the last thing played all these classic characters. And as someone who likes those Looney Tunes shorts, um, it's really hard watching a lot of the last days of Mel Blanc voiceover talent because oh, like sure. that's even another thing is that the Looney Tunes were also in like a desperate state at this point where this is around the time where they stopped making theatrical shorts and they're putting like these package films together where they have some dumb wraparound that's poorly animated by, like, you know, an aged Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling about, like, oh, look, Bugs is a genie, and he's granting wishes, and the wishes correspond with old cartoons that are very poorly edited together to fit, like, a 75-minute movie. So, like, rough. Rough era. Yeah. Um, But he, in this movie, it, like, sounds great. Every single character sounds, like, perfect. It's, like, a wonderful swan song to, like, an amazing voice acting career. Yes, yeah, it really is, and like, I mean, yeah, and, and I mean, sort of talking about this, obviously the Looney Tunes characters and then the Disney characters, which like, mm-hmm. they show up at like the very end, and like, it's so interesting to look back on this now, especially as I have like, a few days ago just watched Space Jam A New Legacy, which yeah. is like, one of the worst offenders of like, you recognize this character? Hey, that's a character, you rec- right? You, that's cool, right? You like that. And this movie... Again, like you have the, that the, the parachuting sequence, which is, which is like a moment where it's like, oh hey, these two characters are like to in you know in this in this movie, but it doesn't feel ne- like shoved in, like the the scene serves a purpose where it's like them messing with Bob Hoskins about the parachute and it's like a tire, <laughs> it's just so, it, it's so great. 
And there's a clear respect for those characters, like you mentioned earlier, where just, like, yes. every single character feels in character, like Tweety Bird, where it's just like, oh, piggies. And then, <laughs> also, I love that he just says, like, hi, Tweety. Like, oh, they know yeah. each other. <laughs> They're buds from way back. Um, but, but yeah, it's just, like, there's a true respect for those characters instead of, like, and you say, a Space Jam A New Legacy, where they try and do that with, like, oh, here are all these Warner Brothers film live-action characters, mostly, in the background, but without any understanding that, like, I don't think... The nuns from The Devils and the Droogs from Clockwork Orange would want to watch a basketball <laughs> game. I don't think they have much interest in that. Yeah, that. Oh my gosh, I'm, I just I, I want. We'll briefly talk about Space Jam: A New Legacy, but like, I think we have to, like, in relation to this. <laughs> it might be one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and I do not like use that lightly. I genuinely don't think a movie has made me angrier than Space Jam: A New Legacy. In relation to this movie, especially the fact that. For the main climax of the movie, these characters aren't even in 2D animation. That they are like these ugly little 3D things. And there's just no respect for any of like the characters. And like when like Looney Tunes characters show up in this movie, it feels great, like we've been talking about. But then in like in Space Jam and New Legacy, it's like it is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Because those characters are only sort of recognized in terms of, oh, you were in the first Space Jam that fucking yes. millennials are nostalgic for. That's the only reason they're there. There is no care and attention, as opposed to, say, like, a movie I rewatched in prep for this, uh, Joe Dante's Looney Tunes Back in Action, which was sort of in okay. between those two, um, which isn't a great movie. You can tell, like, Joe Dante had a lot of, like, infamous studio executive, like, meddling with that particular movie. But... The consistent thing is the Looney Tunes are the Looney Tunes. And you can tell that like, sure. he has a respect and a love for those characters. There's an amazing sequence that feels like a great Looney Tunes short where, like, they go into the Louvre and they jump from painting to painting. So they go through, like, the scream and shit like that. That's a fun, That's cool. like, idea that comes from something like I grew up loving the Looney Tunes, as Joe Dante has expressed many times. And it's such a bummer that, like, that is truly, I think, the last time I think Looney Tunes will be anywhere near recognizable to what they used to be. Because I think just in the 20 years since, it's just been a lot of, like, they don't know what to do with these characters. Like, there were those CG shorts, too, at one point, that, like, they put yeah. out in, like, the early 2010s and stuff like that. It just feels like they, they don't, they're, they're kind of like the Muppets of Warner Brothers, where it's like, I mean, I don't know, pulling them on a t-shirt in the Space Jam 2. They feel more like merchandise and sort of like again like they feel like warner brothers is like using them as like ip as like you recognize these characters not as characters but just as like everyone everyone knows bugs bunny you can ask like any fucking person on the street and they will know who bugs bunny is like even if they've never seen looney tunes and yeah, that feels like what they're sort of doing now, which is so sad. I mean, they're treating them, quite frankly, how most of the time Disney treats Mickey and Goofy and Donald. Right. Like that main staple is just like mascots who are here. And mascots, to be yeah. fair, to be fair though, to Mickey Mouse, I will at least say those recent sort of like flash animated shorts that they've been doing over the last like decade or so with like Paul Ruddish for Mickey Mouse mm -hmm. have been really fun, and they feel like they're actually treating Mickey as like a cartoon character. With, like, liveliness and stretchiness. I would recommend if anybody, like, has any interest in animation. Those shorts are very fun. Right. I mean, and and I guess while we're on this kind of subject of, like, these other movies, I, like, a thing that I think really, like, cements this movie as, like, not just a masterpiece, but also, like, this sort of, like, lightning-in-a-bottle moment for cinema is that, like, 
this movie comes out and it like you said it's not the first movie to do this sort of live action animation hybrid but it's mm-hmm. uh, certainly the first one to do it to this scale if i'm if i'm not mistaken and yeah. and yet none of the movies i i had, the one i didn't get to watch was looney tunes back in action um but i might still I might still watch that. Um, I mean, you have a Joe Dante deficit that is going to be fixed by this podcast, I think. I, I, I That's a mission I, I have. <laughs> yes, I, I have not seen a single Joe Dante movie, including Gremlins. I've never seen Gremlins, but yes, I, I would love to go watch more Joe Dante movies. But um, a, a thing that like cements this movie as like, just like perfect lightning in a bottle is that none of the movies that come after this, whether it's like Space Jam or Cool World, which we should probably talk about that one next. Um, None of them get what makes this movie perfect right. Like, none of them do it right. And I think that that is sort of a hallmark of how great this movie is overall. I think another big element that we haven't really talked about that much, you kind of referenced it, is just that this movie also just really works as a solid noir story. Like, they obviously are cribbing from, like, Chinatown and stuff, but this was, I think, the movie that, like, introduced me to, like, noir tropes of any kind, where I was just like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, like, the the hard-boiled detective, the the initial sort of, like, oh, we're having a red herring crime that all of a sudden, like, gets turned around with, like, a murder that happens, all this other stuff. Like, I score. Oh, my, I, ugh. Alan Silvestri's score in this movie is one of my favorite scores of all time. It's that perfect meld of jazz and the loony stuff. And it's just yeah. genuinely like heartfelt and affecting. I love that score. But anyway, um, how do you feel about this in terms of, like, I guess you, you, we haven't talked about this much. Are you a noir fan in general? And do you feel this works as a solid neo-noir in its own right? I've seen a few of them. I'm, I think I've mentioned to you before, I'm very interested in, like, the sort of, the neo-noir, but the, like, the slacker detective I, I like that sort of stuff. The, so, the you know, long your, goodbye. Um, the, the long goodbye. Yeah, right. uh, Inherent Vice, of course, is one of my favorite movies. The Raymond Chandler type detective, as it's often, who originated that kind of trope, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, I, I like that sort of thing. Uh, and I've seen a few, like, uh, a few noir, classic kind of black and white noir films. And, yeah, I mean, it's that thing that I was kind of mentioning earlier, where it's like the noir plot of this movie contrasted with the Looney Tunes energy, literally, of this of you know the characters and everything, they complement each other almost, right? Because the the noir plot adds weight and adds kind of like a you become invested in like what's happening with you know these these tunes, and um, yeah, it is a very solid noir. I love like the the sh- the very like noir shot of like it's like his door and you see like the the shadow with like the hat like the silhouette. A very yeah. kind of classic noir shot. Um, yeah, I I, lo- I love a, a, a great conspiracy sort of noir like this. It's It works really well, I think. Yeah, and it's like you said, it also just adds a genuine amount of, like, curiosity with the plot. And I think it also makes certain other things work. Like, the underrated people in this movie that hear no one talk about, because they're not cartoons or whatever, but they're great. I love all the patrons at the bar. The yes. regulars that pop up, which also uh, Joanna Castile, also is Dolores, great classic yes. like noir kind of like dame who talks like this kind of deal. Uh, she does that so perfectly. But like all the guys, where it's like there's the the guy who only writes on the pad, or um, the the vet who has one arm, or Angelo, of course, or my favorite, the guy no one talks about, but I think is amazing, that motherfucker who's just dressed up as a cowboy in the back. <laughs> yeah. Wearing what looks like Marty McFly's, like, 
Western outfit he initially wears in Back to the Future 3 with, like, the tassels and shit. Yeah, there's so many great little, like, all those characters are so great. What's I, I love when they sort of just laugh at Doom when he shows up. Like, they sort of, I forget the joke that they say to him, but they just, like, kind of laugh in his face. Well, I mean, even, like, the Angelo setup, which is amazing, with, like, that guy who's the bar patron, um, who is just like, oh, let me get the little Bo Peep, she's lost a sheep, and you're trying to find yes. him. Uh, that guy, who's so great, but he works so perfectly, like, that whole sequence adds tension by just having, like, this guy who seems like an asshole earlier, and it's like, oh, is he actually gonna protect Roger because he made him laugh, or not? And then the Javi the joke, like, that's great. It's a funny bit, but it also, like, helps to establish that, like, oh, no, that sort of power of laughter that this movie talks about a lot, of just, like, oh, our only purpose is to make people laugh kind of deal. It, it, it weirdly permeates where it's like, yeah, you know what? Laughter does work. That thing that comedians talk about all the time, it brings us together, actually works in this case. <laughs> Yeah, the like the line that he has, it's when like they're in the the little like r- the hidden room, and he, when he's like sawing off the the thing, and Roger just kind of slips out of it and goes and Bob, Hot, you know Eddie Valiant's like, you mean you could have done that this whole time? And he just goes, well, only when it was funny. <laughs> and admittedly, it's a it's very funny timing when he does do it. Yeah. Um, should so should so should we talk about Cool World? Because I, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this movie okay. in relation, especially to Roger Rabbit. Yes. Um, well, can I set up what Cool World is? By the way, just in case anyone doesn't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, sure. Out there. Explain. Give people a primer on this long forgotten movie. <laughs> yeah. So this was a movie released in 1992, um, starring, of course, Kim Basinger, Gabriel Byrne, and Brad Pitt. An early Brad Pitt performance, I believe. Uh, Kind of right around the time he's in like Thelma and Louise, I think, and it's directed by Ralph Bakshi, who I, I have not seen. Unfor- unfortunately, I haven't seen any of his other uh, films. Like I know he did the uh, what's that movie Wizards that has yeah. like really real and a really interesting aesthetic. And the like seventies um, Lord of the Rings rotoscoped movie stuff like that. Right. Yes. Um, but this is a movie <laughs> where Gabriel Byrne is a cartoonist who has been put in prison for, I guess, killing a guy or something. Yeah. And he created this comic called Cool World, which is, I'd be curious if, if you, if you agree with me, it, it the vibe and the, the kind of, a, the, the, that I'm getting from like Cool World is like edgy nineties animation. It, and it feels like what a bit of what, like the Simpsons would parody in terms of like cartoon violence. It feels a bit, a bit like that. Um, like, how would you describe, like, the vibe of, of cool, of the cool world, like, those kind of animation sequences? Um, it feels like weird graffiti on a strip club wall. That's, that's a good one, actually. That's really (laughs) the vibe I get off of Cool World, it's just, it's that lasciviousness you're talking about, but it's not, because that goes in way too far of the other direction from, like, a Space Jam, where, like, their whole thing is like, oh, we gotta be the squeakiest clean possible and have no kind of, like, rough edges to us. Pretty much at all. Sure. Uh, versus <laughs> Cool World is like, we are all rough edges, and there is yes. nothing engaging about this on any level except, like, in it fucked up, this is happening. And, like, I, I mean, yes. we did an episode of Double Edge Double where we talked about that, like, way back. But that was an example also of, like, Ralph Bakshi did not want to do that movie. He wanted to do, like, this yes. weird, fucked up, like, horror movie basically about, Can I like, describe? Y- yes. Y- describe Can this. I please describe what Cool World was supposed to be? Yes. So, 
the plot of Cool World was supposed to be that very similar to what the actor, what the movie is, is Gabriel Byrne is a cartoonist, creates this world called Cool World. He's in prison. It was supposed to be, and please feel free to uh, chime in whenever I, if I get something wrong. But um, yeah. so he does. Basically, this this whole movie is conceived as like, so everyone kind of wanted to like fuck a cartoon at some point, right? <laughs> and so, um, it, in the the it was supposed to be that Gabriel Byrne's character does conceive a child with the Hollywood character. Yeah. And the child is like half animated, half live action. Yeah. And so I guess the plot was supposed to be that the child grows up and escapes the new, the cool world and sort of resents their father for like leaving, I guess. And goes on a quest to kill their father in the yeah. real world. Yeah, just like it takes down humanity. <laughs> apparently, so it was gonna be like a, basically a slasher movie with a half human, sounds, half cartoon. Yes, it sounds insane, and is so much more interesting than what the actual movie is. Which is yeah. that like Brad Pitt plays a character who has just come home from World War II in the forties, and he like shows his mother his new motorcycle his new is harley davidson and he takes her on a on a on a, on a trip with it on, a, on the road and she dies in a car accident and right after she dies uh a little a little animated scientist uh like beams him to the cool world and so then we get the introduction of the Gabriel Byrne character in nineteen in the nineties. He's in prison. He's be- gets let out of prison. Somehow has an easel while he's in prison, so he can keep making his cartoon. <laughs> right, he's in like a normal prison, but they've given him like an animator's room, which yeah. makes no sense because I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then so the, this, just the implication that like Brad Pitt's character has been stuck in the cool world for fifty years is insane and the movie establishes the only rule of the cool world and they specifically say the only rule is that the the human characters and the animated characters cannot have sex and it, that's exactly how it's put yep uh, as brad put says just like literally like it is illegal for a human to have sex with a tune and f- yep. seven-year-old thomas is very confused by what this means <laughs> Yes, and and twenty five year old me is also very confused by yes. what this means. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing; it doesn't get any better as you age. It, like, oh no, this ages it, poorly, and it wasn't good to start with. No, and we should also mention like the animation is very shoddy. Yeah, there are like weird moments where like Brad Pitt and this animated Kim Basinger will just have a conversation, but like these little like kind of cartoon characters will just run across screen and like do something. But they're in like a private room, and you can see the edges of the animation cell where it cuts off. Yes, and it's very poorly cropped. Yes, and and yes, it is. It is, uh, and then the fucking plot is that Hollywood. It, her goal is to escape, is to basically have sex with Gabriel Byrne. She t- seduces him because I guess that turns her into a a human. At least yes. it turns her into like live action. And then she escapes the cool the cool world, goes into like real world Las Vegas, and is trying to like become a real person. 
Honestly, a lot of parallels with uh, Monkey Bone, uh, which is another fascinating, weird movie that shouldn't exist. Yeah, another one that I ha- I have not seen, but I I'm aware of how you know crazy that movie is. I know that's an E um, for egregious for sure. At some point, I think in the future, <laughs> yeah, oh, <that laughs> there's a lot to talk about with it. But yes, so yeah, so Cool World is definitely one of these weird aberrations. But I think it's important also while we're mentioning while we're talking about sort of these follow-ups to Roger Rabbit. Um, yeah. A big thing with this movie is also uh, there's no sequel to it, despite it no. making. A shit ton of money. It cost like fifty million, made three hundred fifty-one million dollars in fucking eighty-eight money. So big hit. And they tried for several years to make a sequel. Are you aware of the various different failed sequels to Roger Rabbit? Vaguely, but not not much. What what what, what did they so, try to do? Because this movie does not seem like it would. I mean, you can make a sequel of it, but like again, it's it's a just perfect little movie. Why would why would you make a sequel of it? But but yes, it's what yeah. what are what are some of the attempted uh, sequels? So the first one that was attempted was a prequel called Toon Platoon, which was supposed to be a prequel that's about Roger Rabbit apparently uh, being born to human parents, or at least like living with human parents, and realizing he's a toon, and then he leaves with his human buddy to go to L.A. to find his mom, and along the way they end up enlisting in the army. And they end up fighting against the Nazis who have captured Jessica and are forcing her to do, like, propaganda cartoons for them. Okay. (laughs) Yes. So that was one that apparently uh, was in production for a while in the early 90s. But then um, Steven Spielberg left because this is post-Schindler's List. And he's like, I don't want to do, like, a funny thing with Nazis. So he bails on that point. Um, Then there was another one called Who Discovered Roger Rabbit, where he was going to become a Broadway star. And Alan Menken had written songs for the movie. They were doing animation tests for, like, a blend of CG and 2D. You can see that test out there. It's very oh, odd. Interesting. It's, it's a very curious yeah. uh, attempt. But um, then Zemeckis kept saying he was going to do a sequel that the two main writers had written and was going to have traditional animation for the, those characters, but attempt to do the motion capture stuff for everybody, including Eddie. <laughs> Because um, it was going to be uh, Bob Hoskins returning, but sadly, he obviously got Parkinson's and then died. Very sad. One of the greats. Um, then, there was, this is a weird one where the original writer, Gary K. Wolf, was apparently co-writing a script where it was going to be, like, a version of this, like, old uh, kind of, like, buddy comedy from the 50s called The Stooge. But it was going to be Roger Rabbit and Mickey Mouse in, like, a 50s buddy comedy movie. Like, Hope and Crosby. Right. Right. Which, this was in 2013 he pitched this, so that's like, oh, okay, that's gone. Oh, that's a really bad time. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and then the most recent news was Zemeckis was still trying to do it, um, where he was going to like put it in the 50s and have like Roger and Jessica like kind of move out of like Hollywood, because that's kind of a parallel to where the shorts were declining at that time, theatrical shorts, and it was going to have like a digital Bob Hoskins... That feels especially egregious, yeah. Given 100%. recent like events, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but but yeah, I think that's it's just you can't recreate the synthesis of this movie not just because of like what we're all talking about, where like the timing of it, but even like what do you get out of a sequel to Roger Rabbit? Like, what do we right. need out of that? Like, the only right. stuff that actually got produced where they did some theatrical shorts. There are three theatrical shorts, shorts that are just, like, an average, like, Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman short. They're all, like, solid. Like, Tummy Trouble, Roller Coaster Rabbit, and Trail Mix-Up. I They're on Disney Plus and elsewhere. They're fun, like, shorts. But at the same time, like, I don't know how invested I am in seeing Roger Rabbit, like, perform. 
because the genius of his character is like he's the annoying presence that we're still endeared to next to Eddie Valiant instead of just like I don't really want to watch like a bunch of Roger Rabbit cartoons no I mean I would I would watch them if they were like you know in that sort of older animation style but yeah it, like it is one of, yeah it's one of those things of like you don't need a sequel this movie ends so perfectly where like you know the you know we didn't mention the sort of the secret will of um of Acme and you know it's discovered and he he left all he left Toontown to the tunes and there it's it's theirs and they can live there and it, it ends on such a perfect little note that yeah you you don't need a sequel and as Space Jam proved like these sort of like especially doing something like like a legacy sequel is just a terrible idea for you know any of these contrast that to a script leaked for the toon platoon movie and uh there was this is like literally the ending of it is roger has they just got out of the war and roger makes like a big speech in la and then the crowd parts and he sees his mom in the middle and it's like the sweet moment they like hug each other and then he's like but wait what about my dad and they pan over and it's bugs bunny eating a carrot and saying ain't i a stinker in the movie like iris is out (laughs) Okay, that might be gray, actually. <laughs> that might be I take gray. it all back. Yeah, I take it all back. Let's actually do that. <laughs> that really, that's a really funny bit. Um, <laughs> like you mentioned, like, Roger Rabbit is not, like... I, I wouldn't want to see, like, just shorts of him, like, forever or nothing, you know, nothing else. But, like, I feel like his character in this movie is so... You get everything that you need in this movie. Like you said, like, the, that annoying presence and, like... Yeah, it is. Yeah, you can't you can't recreate that. It's yeah. I don't the, think they should ever try to make a sequel to this. <laughs> the way I can firmly tell you that is, um, when I was younger, to go back to to tie into theme parks. I keep bringing up theme parks on this okay. show. I'm such a let's go a Disney vlog boy <laughs> or whatever. Um, but when I was younger, there were two different Roger Rabbit attractions that existed at some point in either Disney park. Um, there was the ride. I believe it's. Uh, cartoon spin, which is only at Disneyland in California. So I've never been on that ride, never been over to Disneyland. Um, but I've seen, it's like a solid dark ride where, like, you are in Benny the Cab, and you, like, see the weasels have, like, kidnapped Jessica, and recently they weirdly gave her, like, a trench coat. Just as an example of, like, them. Hmm. Like, she literally is wearing, like, a Dick Tracy cosplay in the middle of this ride. The animatronic now wears a Dick Tracy coat. Um, but contrasted to, like, I... I don't like I've wanted to go to Disneyland forever, but that's not my main sort of interest because when I was a kid, I got the perfect Roger Rabbit attraction at Disney MGM Studios back when Hollywood Studios was called that. Um, okay. And they just had an attraction that wasn't a ride, that wasn't anything except you went into the Acme warehouse and like they had like some cutouts of like Jessica and Roger, but also they had like things hanging everywhere that were like very similar to the props and like you would open up boxes and you would have like cartoon sounds come out. You could take a picture where like they set up a fake steamroller and you could like put yourself in a little hole underneath and take a picture like you're being crushed. Like oh, Judge Doom. So cool. Yeah. That is like the most simple attraction possible. <laughs> yeah. Have. And like <laughs> I fucking ate it up. Every time I went to MGM, we're just like, oh my god, I'm in the warehouse. Because that's the beauty of this movie. And, like, the sets and the props, even, yeah. mm-hmm. already feel like, oh, they're so, like, fit perfectly. Like, I want to be in that world where I could hold, like, yeah. a cartoon object. Gosh. 
yeah that would be that would be great to do i would would love if they had that because like imagine i'm imagining if you could like buy like you know go to the gift shop afterwards and buy one of those hammers that like the you know opens up to the i wonder like you could buy one of those maybe like yeah that'd be really cool but but now it's gone um, that's all we're like galaxy's edges now basically yeah oh man i've never been to galaxy's edge have you i was literally planning to go with a buddy of mine in like march of 2020 (laughs) Oh, what what happened? What happened? Was did something happened in March of 2020? I can't, um, I can't see recall. our tenant episode for more details on, <laughs> on that. Um, but but yeah, that's the thing is where like the where my favorite kind of attraction is just being inside of like the fucking thing. Like that's that shows how great a movie is. Where it's like I don't need any animatronics. I don't need a show. Like they did Roger Rabbit shows and stuff. I think. That's another thing, too, where the weird licensing thing with Roger Rabbit, I think that's another big reason why this never happened, is that technically Disney and Spielberg own Roger Rabbit 50-50. Like, that's the deal. Like, you can't do another movie without both of them saying yes. And apparently Spielberg had, like, a lot of problems with, like, them particular. Like, he wanted one of the Roger Rabbit shorts to air in front of uh, Arachnophobia when that was in theaters, but Disney strong-armed, like, no, we're putting it in front of Dick Tracy. Which, to be fair... Fits a bit more thematically, I would say, <laughs> with Dick sure. Tracy. Um, but yeah, and he just like was pissed off about that, and so yeah, so he's in a weird place where like Roger was in the Disney parks for a while and was like all over the place, and then he's just really like disappeared as a character entirely, pretty much, except when he pops up in like the Chippendale movie, which we haven't which mentioned. Is a that great one movie, of, right? Which is a fun movie, that, like a very which, which good movie, arguably the most successful. I yes, think, doing a similar thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really fun movie, and I mean, like, I don't even, my, I guess my problem, one of my problems with that movie is that, like, I don't love the way that they handle the references to other characters, because it can feel like that sort of modern day thing of, like, hey, you know these characters, so you like this thing, it's, you know, we're referencing this thing you like. Well, yeah, the, um, the biggest problem with that movie is that they explain the joke more, as opposed yes. to, like, like, I got my interest in any kind of, like, old cartoons, like, that I watch in this movie, like, oh, the old Fleischer things, I'm just like, who's that guy? They don't explain it, but he looks cool. That's great, yes, as opposed right. to, like, a great joke in that movie is the whole Polar Express, like, mocap world with, like, Seth Rogen and stuff like that. That's a fun bit, <laughs> yeah. but they have to, like, explain the joke to everybody, where it's like, remember that yeah. time in the 2000s where animation was like this? And it, it's a shame, because, like, that's, I think, the bigger problem, is, like, Disney attempting to do this, even getting great, like, you know, talent with Lonely Island people, and great voice yes. people, and making, like, a really fun movie. So, at the same time, it has that element, but also even just that stink of, like, but this is, like, a big Disney commercial, even though, like, we're making yes. fun of ourselves, but we're also but cool because of that. We're with Buy some kids. Disney merch, and let's go to go to Disney World and spend all your money. And, and, um, and watch all these old cartoons and things on Disney+. Plus. Yes. <laughs> it's, like, a less overtly cynical version of, like, Space Jam A New Legacy. I would say that's yes. the biggest thing. It's like it's at least like disguising it a bit better. Yeah, and that movie that movie also is like genuinely funny and like yeah. it uh it's 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 Sandberg and Mulaney, John Mulaney as like the yes. two, as Chippendale. Chippendale. Yes, yeah. they're they're really great. That it has some really funny jokes. Um yeah, that's probably the best kind of version of this. Um But there still is a big gulf. That's how like it but, took us yeah, like almost right? 35 years to get to that point and still it's just like this is good, but but it's not Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the magic and the beauty of of this movie and why it like still watching it it just is so it's so great. 
But yeah, is there anything else that we haven't? Well, I mean, look, that, that's a, this is definitely one of those movies where it's like we could talk for hours about every that's single true. minute I, detail look, that's going on. Look, uh, it was really hard not to not to start recording and then this just be a three-hour episode on just the weasels. Right. <laughs> right. We haven't talked about the weasels that much. <laughs> the weasels are so hilarious. I love, I, I mentioned earlier, that I love that they look like 30s gangsters and with like yes. their little revolvers and Thompsons. One of my favorite bits also in the movie is that is when they die, they all like become angels and <laughs> right. float up to heaven. <laughs> and, and the psycho one like actually keeps the dip thing going and... <laughs> As he's, like, going up to heaven and shit. Yeah, that, yeah. They're, they're so great. David Lander, who's an underrated comedian, as, like, the main weasel. He's like, stop that laughing! Yeah. <laughs> or, that don't rhyme with walls. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, but this does. Yeah, yeah it's so great. Um, and even that, like, that little joke, I'm really glad you mentioned that, because that feels like the type of joke that is handled so bad in other in so many other movies, where, like... They're trying to make, like, oh, yeah, they're saying balls. It's, you know, haha. Like, if you're a kid, you're, that's the funniest well, thing in the world to Space you. Space Jam has that joke where it's like Sylvester opens the locker, like, we've got balls. And just right. like, basketballs and shit come out. Like, okay. Yeah, but there it is. It's, it's, it's great because it's that Zemeckis thing you're talking about of, like, that sort of setup and, and, and then the sort of follow-up of it of, you know, yeah, it's, it's a great movie. <laughs> a big example of this, we didn't even talk about that much, but the actual backstory of Eddie Valiant's brother and how he, like, got the piano dropped in his head, which is a great right. example of, like, that's such a funny bit, but also <laughs> Joanna Cassidy and Bob Hoskins take it so seriously. Like, that scene where they're at the movie theater, and he just, go like, does the whole thing, just like, yeah, we loved walking Toontown with all those lot of laughs. It's, like, it's kind of funny, but also it's so sincere and heartfelt, yeah. and you're fully invested in him doing this, and then that makes even, like, the bit where he does, like, all the gymnastics and whatnot with like his like routine i had like a weird i hadn't felt this before honestly with this movie i got kind of choked up because i just fully realized like oh he's going back to his circus days from the pictures back to like what he and like him and his brother who were like cut-ups like in the photo where they're at the academy and they're being the silly ones with clown noses and shit like that it's so like sweet at the same time it's like so funny seeing like bob hoskins get electrocuted with the focus <laughs> yeah it's so dumb but i'm like crying about it <laughs> Yeah, and he's he's genuinely like pretty good at like the whole song and dance routine that he does there. It's it's so great and he I mean we've we've been praising Bob Hoskins, but we, we can't praise him enough. Like he is really incredible in this movie. Um, he's he was definitely like one of those like when he passed away back in 2014. I had a weird thing where I just I felt like somebody huge from almost my family was gone at that point. Because Roger Rabbit was so, like... I haven't talked about it that much, like, my history with this movie, but this was a prime VHS movie for me as a kid. A go-to. Of course. I watched it so many times. I was so, like... I think it's a main reason why I have sort of this weird love of, like, the history of animation and also film noir. And just, like, it's a movie coded so much in my DNA. Like, it's sometimes going to be really rough going back to him because sometimes yeah. you go back and, like, something's gone, something's a bit lost. I've watched this movie too many times and I know it by heart. But knowing it by heart doesn't make, like it still feels like new every time I watch it. It just feels like this new experience every time with just new details I discover or just new ways I look at it. Like I was talking about with like the Eddie Valiant backstory. It's, it's, it's a fucking perfect movie. 
It really is. Yeah. Cause like, cause I, it, it is funny. Cause I am not someone who grew up watching this movie. I watched, I, the first time I watched it, I was probably in my early teens maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like putting it on, I put it on like the earlier this afternoon and I was like, okay, let's watch Roger Rabbit. I've, I've seen this a few, you know, I've, I've seen it a few times since, since then, since I first saw it. And yeah, it just is so, it's perfect. And also it's, it's one of those things where you blink and an hour is already passed and yeah. you know, they're, they're all, it's already like, oh, there's 30 minutes left. Like there's, you know, it, it, it flies by and uh, yeah, I will say like I I do genuine the more that I watch this movie and I become kind of engrossed by it, I do like you become more like invested emotionally in like the Bob Hoskins in in Eddie Valiant and like the the sort of amazing moment at the end where like Roger's like you haven't lost your sense of humor, have you? And then he just gives him like a big old kiss. It's it's yeah, it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful movie. It is. It's 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 perfect, and it's really it's literally perfect in every way. Um, yeah, and especially also at being like so cynical about the industry of like just yes. the film industry in general, but also being kind of like embracing just that love of performing and entertaining. Like it manages to like have that weird balance where like it's pure, but also it acknowledges like this business is terrible and chews people up. But goddamn, we love putting on a show. Yes, it is so it's such an entertaining movie and yet yeah, it has like it has moments that are like kind of dark. It has moments that are kind of like a, a bit upsetting if you you know, especially if you see them too young and like and yet it yeah, no element kind of it is it is all about sort of the fun and 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 the laughter, the laughter of this movie. It it's such a hilarious movie. Sometimes it's the only weapon we have. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Um but yeah, it's a great movie. Is it? I'm I'm very curious. Where would you put this in your Zemeckis ranking? Is it? Is it at the top? Um, that's. I mean, we'll talk about Back to the Future at some point in some form. But it's sure. It's it is also like a person. That's the thing with fucking Zemeckis, man. Is like he has a couple of like near perfect movies, yes. which is like such a bummer when you consider that's like his monkey's paw. Like you got some of the bit greatest masterpieces of like the 80s and 90s and now <laughs> you're doomed to yeah. do Pinocchio and shit like that which yeah, weirdly which... like honestly I had that weird flash where I realized Pinocchio's in the crowd shot at the end and just like oh I'm a wooden oh, boy yes yeah and it's like oh, oh fuck wow that's an, an omen for like 50 years <laughs> later or whatever like, <laughs> <laughs> and like yeah I mean I do I kind of like like I the last good movie like Allied is fine. It's a good movie. Yeah, I would say of late period Zemeckis. It's, to be fair, like when I was I was going through Zemeckis like pretty much in order, and it was like it was getting rough around that point. So I'm like, well, yeah. anything mildly good is like a top tier <laughs> masterpiece. Allied, I love it. Um, honestly, okay, here's my top five for Zemeckis. Sure. So you got Back to the Future number one, Roger Rabbit's okay. number two, of course. Death becomes her number three. Uh, Castaway number four. Right. And then this is the one that might be controversial um, to some people out there. Back to the Future part three. Part three. That is the one when I watched the Back to the Future movies back like in high school when I was like, you know, first watching them and discovering them and whatever. That was the one that I didn't love. 
I'll be honest. Yeah, um, I think that's that's a lot of like what I hear is a lot of people are more aimed at like two because like 2015 yeah. and like going back to the 50s and whatnot. I think it's a really solid movie, but at the same time, it feels kind of like the early rumblings of like that Zemeckis that we get oh, later. Oh, sure. I would argue where like it still is like very fun, and Bob Gale is you know, still coming through his co-writer and having like fun stuff with that movie the whole time. But it feels a bit more focused on just the different technologies that he has at that time, like the Vista cameras and shit like that, which are also used in this movie. Which is also another big thing where like they had cameras that would go on a specific like timed uh, rotation and whatever, like it was computer time right. kind of thing, so that they could. It's the only way they could have like these characters like really pop together live action animated um but but yeah then he just you know he looked into tom hanks's cold computerized dead eyes and said that's my future that's what i want yeah to. <laughs> i mean does he have anything coming up i'm kind of curious to see um he's got, some, I, he's got something called here like h-e-r-e with i guess tom hanks isn't it Oh, it's apparently set in a single room, follows the many people who inhabit it over years and years from past to the future. I mean... That kind of sounds interesting, actually. It sounds kind of interesting, but but he also has another movie in production, which sounds awful. It's called The King, and... Oh, is that the it, Dwayne Johnson Hawaii this is movie? the Dwayne Johnson movie. That's been in production yes. for forever. They announced that like seven years ago. I don't know if that's still happening or not. Yeah, I mean, it says in development, but yeah, it doesn't. I don't know. Plus, that sounds too interesting for even The Rock to attempt. It's like, no, but I can't like <laughs> do the one eyebrow and then <laughs> sell you my tequila. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> that takes effort? No. Yeah. Call um, Dave Batista to do that if you want a wrestler making effort. <laughs> or even John Cena. Like. John, I mean, to be fair, both Batista and Cena, I think, would not be a- appropriate casting for a lot of reasons for that movie. Yeah, that's true. But, but anyway, anyway um, yeah, so you know what? We've been talking for a while. This is definitely going to be our longest episode. Um, yeah. So far, at least. Uh, I don't know. Next week, tune in. Um, but... Uh, yeah, do you have any, like, final, final things? Because I think we summed it up pretty well. Any final tidbits about Roger Rabbit before we kind of move to Between the Lines? Um, no, nothing else from what I've just mentioned. Love just, like, it, it is, it's perfect. It's such a, it, it is a masterpiece. Like, a genuine, just, one of the greatest, like, just, I mean, animated films, kind of. You know, in, in, a, in a weird way, it has this, it's, it is so, it's so perfect in what it is doing. And like you mentioned, it was made at the, just the perfect time and no, no movie has done this as well as this movie, not even fucking close. Um, y- yeah, it's, the, it's a movie I watch that makes me so interested in a director I kind of have no interest in. Like, I don't love Robert Zemeckis at all and yet I, because he made Roger Rabbit, I'm kind of so fascinated by him and by his career. And I mean, he he has that where, like, but between that and Back to the Future, the whole trilogy, he kind of just has that, like, fuck you, I can kind of do what I want as long as you give me money. That's the thing yeah. at this point. It's like, I can do anything, but you still have to give me the money for it. I don't know how many more opportunities he has of that, necessarily, but yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping for that here movie. I had no idea about that before you said anything, but that sounds yeah, like, like the sounds... most interesting thing he could do <laughs> at this point, and especially because it's, like, one room... And we're not, like, <laughs> going everywhere. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get him out of this fucking, like, just his uncanny CGI 
era that he's kind of been in, especially recently with like fucking Welcome to Morrowind and and Pinocchio, especially. Like, yeah, I I'll at least say this much honestly. Like before Pinocchio, I'll at least say even Robert Zemeckis at his worst is so fascinating. Like Polar Express and even A Christmas Carol are fascinating just in terms of like I don't how why are you doing this. This is, like, such a bad idea. And Marwin especially. Marwin is definitely an E for egregious bookmark. We have to talk extensively about that movie. Like, that's the thing is he has, even at his usual worst, that's interesting, but then Pinocchio is like, I just felt sad. Like, you felt angry. I felt, like, so sad watching that whole yeah. thing. It is a very sad movie to watch. And, yeah, and also felt so, like just how bad that movie has felt so hit so much harder after like the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio like came out like a few months after and yeah. that movie is is fucking incredible and is so creative is pa- packed with so much creativity and like a vision for what del Toro wanted to do and yeah it, there's an essay to be written about the weird trilogy of 2022 Pinocchios because there's those two and then that weird Polly Shore one that was like animated in Russia or something right. that yes. also came out like in January of that year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, but what about you? What had uh, any any closing thoughts on on Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I said it earlier. I, I agree with you. It's just uh, it's perfect moving. Um, and I say when I say perfect, it's definitely like there are some things that maybe don't hold about this movie, like say the Native American bullet. Which, to be fair, they're referencing sure. old cartoons, but there's certain, like, right. bits and pieces, even, like, the weird stuff they change. Like, you're aware of the weird censorship stuff, right, with this movie? Where, like, no. in the original, like, theatrical version, it was all the way until, like, uh, its Laserdisc release. There was a point when, like, Benny the cab's wheels get dipped and just grab it, like, flies out of the car. You see a brief shot of, like, underneath her skirt. Oh. Was, like... Yeah. It was very different from, like, the version you see now, where it's like, oh, clearly, like, red cloths covering it. Nope. That wasn't the case, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um, very interesting. But, yeah, so, like, stuff like that feels a bit, like, weird and lascivious in a way that doesn't hold up necessarily. But the core of the movie and the core of, like, everybody involved is just, it's so phenomenal. It's like, Zemeck- I said this earlier, and Zemeckis has been quoted. It's just, like, it's three different movies in one. It's a noir live-action movie. It's half of, like, an animated movie. <laughs> And it's a special effects extravaganza. And it plays all of it so casually. Like I said, that casual flex element of it. It just makes it all the more appealing. It's like this confident at doing something. No one had really attempted this perfectly before. And few have tried and succeeded since. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good way to to cap things off. Right. And let's go into our weekly segment now, Between the Lines. So, Between the Lines is a segment that uh, we do every week in which, you know, in relation to a, uh, you know, whatever movie we're talking about, uh, at the end we recommend a movie uh, that either, like, could be a potential other modern masterpiece kind of thing that fits the the, the letter for the episode, or just something, uh, you know, kind of related to some degree. And I have, uh, I'm going first here, and my pick is another film uh, from the animation director Richie Williams, who we didn't go into much of his like career, but that's also fascinating with like the Thief and the Cobbler, which I told you about, which mm-hmm. is like that's a whole other episode. Um, but <laughs> he also did a couple other projects before Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and one of them is my recommendation. Um, it is his 1977 film Raggedy Ann and Andy: A Musical Adventure, which is a movie 
that came out, like I said, in 77. Interestingly, right around the same time as Star Wars, so that's probably why you haven't heard of it. Why you probably didn't go see it. Uh, just got <laughs> delayed to like 77 in May, and it's like, oh, you're not. You're not making any money, Richard, I'm sorry. But basically, uh, this follows sort of the Raggedy Ann and Andy characters. So you've seen like the dolls, the kind of floppy toys that you would uh, see, say, in uh, the Warrens' actual version of Annabelle, for example. <laughs> um, but... Uh, this movie, uh, it starts off with live action with this little girl who's played by Richard Williams' daughter, Claire, um, who has got, you know, raggedy Anne in her arms and, like, brings her over to her room and then drops off this toy. And then all of a sudden, her room turns into an animated landscape and all of the toys come to life. And hmm. they're all abuzz about the fact that it's her birthday and she just got a new toy, um, who is this French doll that everyone kind of like tries to embrace, but she thinks she's like, oh, I want to go back to my original home world of Paris. You know, that strange far off land. Uh, but <laughs> point is very similar to Toy Story. I noticed very fast. Yes. Came once again, 77 to 95 for Toy Story. But um, basically this French doll um, is saying like, oh, I want to go back to France or whatever. And there's a snow globe that contains a little pirate guy inside. <laughs> who was like, oh, she looks so beautiful. She's the love of my life. I want to get down. And then Raggedy Ann and all the other toys were like, hey, let's get him out of the, you know, the snow globe. And so they cut a whole Mission Impossible style, and all the water comes out, and the ship goes over, and he's like, oh, great. Uh, I'm going to kidnap you and leave the room. And the literally, I love the animation where it's like the the ship has like little oars that come out of the bottom and they like manage to make it go up oh. to like up down the floor, up the wall and through the window. That's um, so cool. Then Raggedy Ann and Andy are like, Oh, we have to save her. So they go on a big odyssey outside uh, where they run into other toys and just other, like the thing about this movie is um, I watched it. I'd heard some people say who had like seen it when they were like kids in the seventies who had said, like, oh, I watched it, it was really fucked up, it was weird. And I'm like, okay, I'm curious to watch it. Um, no exaggeration, like, even before they leave the toy room, but especially afterward, this becomes a surreal, near nightmare at times, but also a weird dream. Like, that's the thing, it feels so bizarre, where, like, Richard Williams, as I said, like, would, you know, really believed in, like, we have to do full animation, we can't second-guess anything. There's, very, like, one animator per character, and... Each character has such distinct style, and they're so weird where it's like, there's a point where they go to Looney Land, and it's just this random part of the woods where everyone acts like weird cartoon characters, and one of the guys he runs into, when this guy they run into is like a guy dressed up as a knight, but he has like a weird like purple hue and a giant nose, and he's like, oh, I love you! I can't believe you're in Looney Land! So he's deeply upsetting. Uh, but it's, it's an... All of the characters, like, especially the Raggedy Ann and Andy, also have, like, they have the proportions and movements of, like, a doll. If it came to life, it doesn't have right. any, like, bones in it, so they're, like, kind of flopping around. But they're all performing these songs that are written by Joe Raposo, who is most famous for, like, he wrote all the early songs of Sesame Street, like Sunny Day. Right. Or even also he did the music for The Great Muppet Caper, the second Muppet movie. Um, Hell yeah. Rules. Great songs. Stepping out like a star. Uh, but anyway... This movie is, it's kind of like, it's not available to rent or stream anywhere. Um, I watched it because there was a few different versions that are uploaded 
on uh, the on YouTube, particularly. I want to shout out the guy Garrett Gilchrist, who is the guy who's been leading like the charge to restore the thief and the cobbler. Great thing he's been working on for twenty years. But he also uploaded like a scan of a thirty-five millimeter print that's in kind of rough shape. Um, but it looks it's like four K. It looks beautiful. Um, but also even like the weird edges kind of add to the unsettling nature of the movie at the same time. <laughs> right. So I'd yeah. recommend anyone wants to see this. Um, it's there's there's other stuff. Like, there's a point where they go into like one part of uh, the the forest and they find uh, like this location where like the ground starts to move like water and then it becomes sentient and it's this character who like is the water ground. Who's like, oh, I just keep eating all the time, and he like eats himself and goes in, and like the main <laughs> character, you know, they get eaten multiple times. There's him, or like the sad camel toy that they meet, who's like, oh, I had sticks for my arms and they're broken, so I can't get up very well, and sings a song about how sad he is, and it's kind of just like a bummer, but it's beautifully animated. That's the thing. This movie is a lost relic. I would love to see. Like, Criterion doesn't do a lot of animated movies, but this feels like oh. a very interesting one. I would legitimately love to see them, like, restore and have, like, some special features about it and shit. I think it's an underrated, almost masterwork um, that especially just is so odd and, like, would never... It's another movie that I don't think could ever happen now <laughs> because of how just, like, upsetting and weird it is. Like, down to... They have these weird, like, dolls that do Greek chorus stuff. These just two weird dolls that sing for 15 seconds about, like, where'd you go? Where'd you go, Raggedy? Oh, yeah. And that happens multiple times. <laughs> and there's no explanation. <laughs> it's it's a very weird movie. I'd recommend it to anybody if you're interested in weird animation, Lost Gems. This is a great one. Yeah. Yes, for mine, I'm... Not going with a, a very obscure movie. In fact, it is a, a movie directed by one of the most you know famous filmmakers in the world. Uh, it is a film from 2011, uh, Steven Spielberg's The Adventures of Tintin. Genuinely a masterpiece, for one. A, a really incredible movie that also continues to age in a fascinating way because it, it is a movie that, again, uses a sort of live-action elements, but animates them. I mean, it, it's a mocap thing, very similar to what Zemeckis was doing. Right, and yet it, it, it looks miles better than any of the stuff Zemeckis was doing. And it, it is some of the most creative, like, action set pieces that I think Spielberg has done in, like, his later half of, the later part of his career. And has that, that swashbuckling adventure, that, that, that tone that is so incredible and I, I, I believe you mentioned that you like you said it was like this is probably the last sort of indiana jones type of movie that is like really great and really like you know it it, it is so much fun and i don't have any attachment to like tintin as a character no yeah. i've never like read any of those but it, the movie is so energetic and so incredible and just looks unbelievable like there are it is one of the incredible cases i think for like why animation is so important because like it's you would never be able to do this in live action unless you were like it was like a 300 million dollar movie or something like that like the set pieces are just so insane it is i i also think it's the best uncharted movie that we've ever gotten mm -hmm. because it, it had it, very similar 
tone to the Uncharted games. Uh, man, it came out in 2011, and we, we haven't gotten a sequel. I remember the the plan, if I remember correctly, was that like Spielberg was going to do the first one, and then Peter Jackson would do the second one. And then I guess Peter Jackson discovered that he could restore old footage and has been doing that for... for well, I mean, that was right you know. before The Hobbits as well came out. Like, that was the year before. Oh, So well, that was, yes. like, more what he was dealing with at that time. I think, right. honestly, like, there, there's such a fascinating case for, like, how those movies derailed that man as, like, a yes. person. It derailed everyone. Yeah. Like, those movies were just, like... Oh, I have to pick up production, and uh, no one's going to direct this, but I have to because every I don't want everyone to lose their job, so I'll do it. But it's, yeah, and those movies are, are a disaster. Yeah, um, they're pretty much very fascinating. Um, but yeah, the Adventures of Tintin. It, it's great. It's got a great cast. I mean, it's great. To, like Andy Serkis is a voice in it mm-hmm. as like the the captain. He. It's great to see him. Like, of course, he does like a lot a lot of mocap stuff, but it's great to see him in something like this where he is like you know he's not like a fucking he's not Gollum or he's not King Kong or he's not like an ape right he's, like, he's just a guy and like Daniel Craig as the villain is incredible yeah it's just a really creative and inventive blockbuster also like it's just such a big movie um yeah it's a great it's a great late era Spielberg as many movies are if anyone for some reason hasn't seen this movie, just please go go seek out the Adventures of Tintin. It's an absolutely incredible movie. Well, to be fair, sadly, I think that is kind of the case with Tintin, at least in the states. Like I remember, it it made nothing in the United States. Like yeah. it was definitely like I remember I went and saw it theatrically, and like no one was there basically during that like holiday weekend where it came out like right before Christmas. It's such a bummer because like I also see a lot of like shit talking of Tintin. They kind of like a lot of people lump it in with those Robert Zemeckis mocap movies, and it's not that. And it's such a bummer that like the mocap thing basically died with Tintin because that was right after like Image yeah. Works fell apart because Mars Needs Moms was like in February of that year, and that whole production yeah. company shut down. So we never got the Zemeckis mocap remake of Yellow Submarine. <laughs> Which is a weird thing that almost happened. <laughs> sounds sounds awful. Sounds yep. so, so bad. Sounds, sounds so bad, yet fascinated, once again, to like see yeah. that train wreck. But it's a bummer that Spielberg just like he came in with one movie and just like, oh, I perfected this. And he did. I would yeah. love to see have seen like other people take that route that he was doing with Tintin. Because I agree with you, like the action sequence is so great. That whole finale where it's just like classic yeah. Spielberg shots, but without the restraints of gravity and human foibles yeah and a camera you know having to put a camera somewhere you know up high or whatever yeah i mean spielberg is so great at sort of moving the camera and you know motion and and the way he blocks you know the way he does blocking is so incredible and like that movie yeah it like it is him like sort of just free to do crazy shit for that entire movie um yeah, yeah he's, it it's another example of like not having any of the limitations for animation, kind of like a Roger right. Rabbit. That's the thing, like Spielberg, mm-hmm. even like in relation to this movie, but also even Animaniacs, which he produced and was like very creatively involved in and shit like that. Right. The dude loves classic animation, like he has he a does. deep respect yeah. for it. And you know, without him, we also wouldn't have gotten like the American Tale movies a lot, like the, the, the two Don Bluth movies, like that and Land, uh, Land Before Time, were ones that he produced and shit like that. A lot of like the great 
underrated animated movies, particularly of like the 80s and 90s. He had a hand in. Also, this one from the 2010s that I agree with you deserves so much more. It is, I think in my Spielberg like top 10, it's like number like eight or nine, which is pretty big for like Spielberg. Yeah. I mean, let me see where, where it lands on mine. I think it is pretty high. I have it at number nine in my Spielberg ranking. Yeah. Um, That's it, a lot of competition to get in the top. It's hard to get in that top 10. It is. It really is. Um, it, yeah, it is so much fun. It, it like also just that thing of Spielberg being like a great entertainer. Like he wants to entertain people and tell a great story. And he knows how to tell that story through, you know, action. And yeah, it's yeah. Really incredible movie. That's, that's my recommendation for, for, for this, this episode. Yes, so uh, once again, our recommendations, in case you missed them, I had uh, the 1977 Richard Williams-directed fucked-up masterpiece of uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy, a musical adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, and I had uh, Steven Spielberg's 2011 uh, film, The Adventures of Tintin. One of two 2011 Spielberg films that came out within less than a week of each other. (laughs) That is true, and... You know, the other one, it's it's an interesting Spielberg movie. I, I've wanted to revisit it for a while. War Horse, of course, is the movie we're, we're, yeah. we're referencing. Yeah, War Horse <laughs> is what we're referencing. Yeah, my least favorite Spielberg um, movie. And I, I'll hold myself to that for now. I haven't rewatched well, it. Well, I mean, 1941, been... though. I mean, bad. That's down there. That's amongst, like, the bottom of the Spielbergs. Isn't, but, uh, isn't Zemeckis tied to that movie? Didn't he write it or something? Am I... 1941, yes. That was... Uh, yes, yeah. The three movies that he and Bob Gale wrote but didn't direct are fascinating because it's that one, it's right. um, Trespass, the Walter Hill movie, okay. very underrated, really great with like Ice Cube, um, Ice T, um, and Ice of, like, Cube, and Ice Cube. Yes, the two and the Ices huh. uh, are t- <laughs> finally <laughs> reunited together. This is very cold burr. And then the weird um, other Tales from the Crypt movie that no one talks about, Bordello of Blood. Which apparently is based on a script they wrote in like college together, um, and oh. is very bad in contrast to Demon Knight. Uh, Bordello Blood sucks so much. This has this has one of the ugliest posters I've ever seen, with like the woman's legs and like the this skeleton looking through it. It looks kind of ugly. I hate it. Oh god, <laughs> that, just that age gap thing comes up even more. I'm so old because you don't know who the crypt keeper is. <laughs> I, this is the thing where I've, I've learned who the Crypt Keeper is over the years, just through like, you know, being on Twitter on like film Twitter or whatever, but yeah, no, not really. (laughs) Really Oh God. Tales from the Crypt's great. I need to have, we, we need to somehow watch Demon Knight and Tales from the Crypt on this podcast. I'm down. Hell yeah. Let's go. But anyway, anyway, we've been going long. We got to wrap up. Yeah. Going long. So we want to, you know, do our close here, including, uh, you know what? I want to read some feedback real quick. Uh, from somebody. Uh, we're recording this right after the release of, of the Blair Witch episode. Agent Black Acid, or Nick G, as he's called on Twitter, says, Wonderful episode, gents. Um, have either of you seen the Good Bad Flicks video essay on what Book of Shadows would have been without the studio interference? I've watched this a few times. Could have been a very interesting sequel. Um, well, thank you for the compliment, Nick. Yes, thank you. I have seen that. That was part of actually my research for that particular episode. Um, yeah, if you want more detail on, like, the version I talked about of Book of Shadows, I would recommend that particular video. It goes into a lot more detail about what could have been, basically, with that movie. Interesting. Huh. I, I, I have not seen that, but I will be seeking that out. So, thank you. 
Yes, thank you, Nick. Now, uh, we need to thank some other people, like Burial Grid for our intro and outro music. Uh, purchase his music at burialgrid.com. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Find her at mishkyle96. That's M-I-C-H Kyle 96. Uh, and commission some artwork from her. We love the artwork, Michelle. Um, and thanks, of course, uh, to our patrons over at patreon.com slash cinema number two letter, where uh, for $1 every month, you get uh, access to bonus podcasts we cover, uh, where we're especially covering a lot of uh, recent releases. Like, we would have already put out, as of now, um, our Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, um, yep. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, and our doubleheader Barbenheimer discussion of both yes. Barbie and Oppenheimer, uh, which we're about to do as of this recording. That's yes. almost... In a few... In a few days. In a few days. We're going to be here. Yes. Um, but you get access to that. And also, by the end of the month, I'll have up our uh, bonus podcast. We do one big one every month. And it'll be, uh, this month, our top ten directorial debuts, which we have recorded. It was a lot of fun. A lot of interesting choices neither of us expected uh, yes. on there. Yes. That's a great a, episode. Yep. Almost two hours long. Kind of, you know... <laughs> a bit shorter than this one. Um, but, uh, but we also, uh, you know, if you want to see more of us, uh, please find us uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cinema Number Two Letter or any other social media platforms we might be moving to in the near future. Um, and also, uh, you can find me specifically on Twitter and Letterbox at, at not the Who's Tommy. And also do some writing at MarianaThomas.wordpress.com and at film cred.com. And once again, it's August. Uh, if you're in the Atlanta area on uh, the Labor Day weekend, uh, you can see me at DragonCon. If you have the DragonCon app, you can look up my schedule for all the different panels I'll be doing. Um, and yeah, come say hi. Uh, yes, and you can follow me on uh, Letterboxd at my name, Brian Andrade, B-R-Y-A-N-A-N-D-R-A-D-E. And then on Twitter, uh, I am at Brian Drade. It's a nice little portmanteau of my name followed by the the number three uh yeah follow me on there to see what what what, what i'm what movies i'm watching and uh, to hear more about movies we've been watching you can subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, stitcher and other podcasting platforms if you're listening on talk film society why listen to all the other great shows on the network and you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean feed for all the episodes in this previous in this particular miniseries or um the old double-edged double bill stuff you can find on the feed and if you can't support us for the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. Please do so. <laughs> yes. Um. My, Sorry, favorite, I, <laughs> my favorite animated <laughs> character, Brian. Just so <laughs> lively and wild. Uh, but now, you know what? Before we go, we have to tease our next episode, our finale yes. for the Blockbuster season. Um, yeah. It'll be our A for Atypical, which in this case is going to be Last Action Hero. Yes, hell yeah. Talking Arnie, talking McTiernan, talking uh, Charles Dance. Uh, talking Shane Black as well. Absolutely. You know, hell yes. Movie. Um, and interestingly, I think it's very thematically tied to this one in terms of it kind of feels like the end of when you could do a movie kind of like Roger Rabbit. Uh, and that yeah. that movie feels like kind of like the last attempts that really just failed miserably. Yes, but I mean, I think that movie is phenomenal. And I, I believe you, you you also like it. So it'll be... Yeah. 
Uh, uh, I think it, you know, it, we, our opinions differ from the audiences of 1993, 30 years later, shockingly. Who would Sure, guessed? yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, but, but, yes, but that'll be next week. And until that time, you know what? I mean, I think, to quote a great master, that's all, folks. Hey, that's a, that's a good line. I should use that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Tinkerbell comes in to appease Michael Eisner, and we're done. Yep. Yep. <laughs> 